Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. As you can tell from the title, we're talking about Suicide Squad, the movie that came out in 2016. And I know that this is a movie that's kind of divisive when it comes to comic book movie fans, even amongst DC fans. And so I figured, all right, if I'm talking about a divisive DC movie, I think I should bring back the guest who spoke about the last divisive DCEU movie. And of course, I'm talking about the host of the I Love That Movie podcast, Lisa. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tim. I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> to talk about this movie. <laughs> I, I, I promise I will not bring you back on for just controversial movies. Um, you uh, can. I can handle it. Okay. It's just, it's <laughs> like, oh, like I, I just imagine, like, I'm like, hey, you want to talk about this? Like, oh, no. Do you, do you want me to get hate? Is that what you're, look, aiming for? <laughs> I mean... Oh, I can man. take the heat. I can take it. Okay, well, that's good, then. All right, <laughs> then. And so, as like we said before, we're talking about Suicide Squad, so let's jump into our review of it right now. Suicide Squad, the comic book characters beforehand, before this movie was announced or in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, definitely. Um, when it was announced, I don't know that I knew as much about it. As it started to kind of pick up steam, I started reading a little bit more about it. But I have the first volume, I think, of the New 52 comic that I bought right before it came out to read just to kind of, you know, get my bearings. And, and then I also... Um, would look up information about it. I think uh, that if you've ever seen that YouTube channel Variant, he had like a video on the squad and kind of like the history of it. So that kind of helped too. So I was pretty aware of it. And I mean, some of the characters like Harley Quinn, obviously I, I knew who she was. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't deeply invested. I hadn't like read all the comics or anything like that, but I was aware of it. It's funny that you bring up Variant because I, I'm aware of the uh, channels because I'm a fan of Film Riot. Like, and Aries uh, shows up a lot on in the Film Riot skits and the short films they do. So that's funny that you bring oh. them up. Yeah, it, and it was so funny. Like, I remember when that was first announced. Like, Aries is like is is launching his own show. I'm like, I wonder what that's going to be about. It's all about comic books. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. I've already sub subscribed. So yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, and then what were your feelings when the first trailer, the Comic-Con trailer, dropped? Well, I guess, you know, at first, uh, a lot of my friends were really into this movie. Like, they were like, this is going to change everything. It's going to be so much better than, like, you know, uh, Man of Steel and BBS. You know, oh, this is like a, a breath of fresh air. I wasn't convinced yet that that was going to be the case. I just kind of thought it looked interesting. I liked that it was a different tone. It seemed like they were going in another direction. Um, it, it was an exciting trailer. 
I guess I'll just put it there. Nice, nice. And mm-hmm. I, I was I was didn't answer my own question. Uh, the first time I actually became aware of the Suicide Squad it was actually when Arrow season two introduced the Suicide mm. Squad. And I, I just, and also Michael Jai White as like Bronze Tiger. I just love his casting in that, and I wish mm-hmm. they brought the squad back. But obvious reasons why they have is because of yeah. the I don't want to say tumultuous relationship between characters on TV and movies because we have two flashes and we do have two death strokes technically. Um, uh-huh. But even though that like. Hey, we're not sure if we're doing a district movie. Let's bring them back. Oh, we might be doing the district movie. All right, uh, we're gonna write them off a little bit. So, I understand why they didn't bring the squad back for the show because of the movie coming out, and because of that, as well as the announcement of this movie, that I end up picking up uh, one of the few trade paperbacks of the John Ostrander run from the 1980s. Uh, mm-hmm. which has a lot of influence on this iteration of the squad, as well as obviously the new 52 with the inclusion of Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed that. And it's, it's so funny because a movie that you just reviewed released recently on your show, Escape from New York, it is definitely aping from Escape from New York, at least from one of the conceits of it that because of like, Oh, do this or you will be killed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do see that connection. And I mean, he's, uh, uh, at least in the movie, he's a, he's a criminal, you know. Yeah. I think there's, it's debatably innocent or not, but, but at least by the government standards in, in New York, uh, in that movie, he's considered a criminal. And that's his path to redemption. Right. And the fact that, like, oh, like, like in Escape from New York, they give him a, they believe, like, oh, we're giving you a little, like, a uh, vaccine before you go in as part of a medical treatment before going into the city. But it's actually a little, um, it is a little smile explosive that would, that would pop, like, in the veins of his neck out. He would die in seconds. And then with John Ostrander's run, it, we have, it is a tiny explosive that would literally blow up your head if mm-hmm. you would get out of line. And, and I know, like, that's something like one of the naysayers of this movie was like, oh, it's just a ripoff for Escape from New York. Well, the comics were kind of a ripoff, so. <laughs> not saying you, you're va- your point is not valid, but I'm just like, it's technically faithful to the source material. Yeah, and I kind of don't like it when people default to that all the time, because everything in pop culture is influenced by something else. I mean, you could go back, I mean, even before movies and TV and books and back into history, things are influenced by other things. I think that's fine. As long as it's effective and it's entertaining and it fits the story, it doesn't feel like a ripoff to me. It just feels inspired. Exactly. I mean, I think it was Jim Jarmusch, uh, filmmaker, who said, like, everything's a ripoff is everything else. Do it. Yeah. And just, like, do it, do it and follow your influences. Just make it your own. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of like a celebration of what you're influenced by and, and, and that can come out. I think as long as the the intention is there, like the tone is genuine, you can tell, you know? And I don't think I mean, after you see this movie, it's definitely not a straight ripoff of Escape from New York. It's pretty different, but that one element is in there, you know. Right. And I remember when I saw I remember when the Comic Con trailer leaked. Online before they got the official release, because I, I remember mm-hmm. it was I was it was with my girlfriend at the time, and we were seeing it was there used to be like I've mentioned before on my show there is a promotion on Long Island called Retro Picture Show that show horror movies usually back to back with thirty five on thirty five millimeter film, 
Before that, there was another promotion called Summer Camp Cinema that did the exact same thing, and they do it kind of themed nights. And that mm-hmm. night, it was Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, nice. And, and the Swedish Let the Right One In, back-to-back, mm-hmm. on 35mm. Cool. And we had saw Pan's Labyrinth, and the movie is gorgeous. If you've not seen the movie, I don't know what you're doing. I think stop this show, go watch Pan's Labyrinth, then come back. Seriously. Uh, yeah, especially since The Shape of the Water, he just won Oscar for Best Directing for. I mean, if you enjoy Shape of the Water, check out Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone and Kronos. And mm-hmm. and so and there was a, usually an intermission, like about 10 minutes in between movies. And so I ended up checking Twitter at the time, and I found out, oh, the Comic-Con trailer release or leaked. And, of course, it was shot on somebody's phone in Hall H, so the quality is, <laughs> is terrible. And we're sharing headphones while people around in the theater having conversations. So we're just kind of, like, huddle around it. And we're like, like, and we hear the Joker's laugh at the end. We're like, whoa. We were immediately pumped for it. Now, later on in the ad campaigns, we heard there were reshoots done because every Hollywood movie has reshoots. And yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but of course, it's the DC Universe, so of course they it's are... It's a big deal. Mm. They always have a magnifying glass upon everything they do, and so it became wildly publicized that the reshoots were being done. Mm-hmm. And then we had a second trailer where it's Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's a very different tone compared to the first one. What were your feelings at that point after you saw that trailer? Um, you know, you know, I had heard about the reshoots and I'd heard about how um people also reacted to this trailer and that influenced again I think what they did after that, right? You know, after people saw this trailer and responded so positively to it, they realized this movie isn't funny, it's not light, um, like the way that the trailer portrays it, so they ended up editing even more and I guess I was concerned with that just because by this point I'd started like reading about David Ayer and um you know his his previous movies are not funny they're serious and so I kind of thought are they gonna lose some something here you know I was worried about the tone being funny and light because I I think Suicide Squad a team of villains I don't know that that should be funny and light you know so I just kind of I, I had some concerns I'll say that yeah, and you would hope that it, despite the kind of change of tone, that the director's vision would still be maintained. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that as the movie goes along, if that's the case or not. Right. But remember, I saw it, I'm like, wow, this is very different from the first trailer. And I immediately responded positively to it. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh, this this looks fun. I'm like, I know it's very different from the first trailer, but I'm like, sure. Like, maybe they were going for a different tone here. And I'm like, all right, fine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until one of my frequent co-hosts, uh, Chris, he's like, I don't, I'm not feeling this. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, he's like, He gave me his, his feelings towards the first one, how it definitely seemed like a specific vision, a very dark vision. And the first trailer seemed very much in line, in the same vein as BVS. And this is changing mm-hmm. very different. And then once he put that kind of a perspective for me, I was like, oh, maybe you're right. Then we had the third trailer with Ballroom Blitz. And I'm like, huh, all right then. They're really going whole hog on this kind of change in tone. Mm-hmm. And then the movie comes out, and so what, and, okay, well, before that, we had the BVS critic fallout. Yep. And so, that obviously, it definitely influenced people's mindsets going into Suicide Squad. I mean, hell, there was even the point that, like, we should have a petition to take down, like, or or take down Rotten Tomatoes, and, like, there's a, there's a bias against DC films. 
I personally think there is a slight bias, but I don't think it's like it's a Illuminati kind of like <laughs> overlord that there's somebody in some secret no, building I, like saying like no, I'm we must you. beat on them. Right, I'm with you. I do think that there's a bias, but I don't think it's as simple as you know some evil guy twirling his mustache, you know, <laughs> uh, kicking uh, DC fans down. I think it's more complicated than that. But I, I do think there is a little bias. But but yeah, I agree with you. And so when did when when the movie came out? When did you first see it? Did you see it over the weekend, or did you wait a little bit? And what was your initial reactions after upon seeing it for the first time? I did see it opening weekend. I saw it with uh, my friend uh, Courtney, who you've heard on the podcast before. She on my podcast, she did a the episode American Psycho, and uh, she was with me and my husband. Her husband didn't want to go. <laughs> he was like, he's a real big, uh, he's more of a Marvel fan. And he just, you know, he's choosy about movies, which ones he likes and doesn't. He just said he, from the trailers he didn't think it was going to be good. And she was kind of like, no, I'm going to see it. I really want to see it. So we we went, and um, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Like, the first time I saw it, I actually did really, really like it. Right, and that's cool. And I, I, I find it funny that I'd be able to twist his arm and go in to see it, despite, like, his kind of feelings towards it. I mean... What was his feelings after the movie? Was it the same? Oh, no, he, she couldn't convince him to go. Oh, oh <laughs> He my... stayed home, so she saw it oh, okay. with us. Uh, it was her, me, and my husband. That was it. <laughs> oh, my bad. And, like, I couldn't really talk any of my other friends into seeing it either, but I had been following it so closely at this point that, you know, I was really anxious to see what the result was going to be. Um, and I noticed, I will say, like, I noticed the crowd that came was pretty diverse. Like, there were a lot more girls in the crowd than in some of the other hero movies I'd gone to see, um, and also people of color. And um, I don't know, I just noticed that. And I even, as we were in the theater, I thought about that. I'm like, oh, you know, it's me and my friend who is a, a woman of color, and um, and I'm Hispanic, and, you know, there's two women and a guy seeing this comic book movie. Instead of, like, normally it seems like there would be a big group of guys and maybe they drag a couple of their girlfriends. In this case, it was almost like the opposite of that. So I noticed that. Um, also at Alamo, they showed a lot of, like, little trailers in the beginning. You know how, I don't know if you've ever been to, like, an Alamo draft house, but they, they'll do, they'll show little clips that kind of, in some way loosely relate to the movie. And one of the things they showed, which I wish I could like know more about this. Cause it kind of, it was just like surprising to me, but they showed um, like a compilation video of all these dancers, like hip hop dancers. And um, they were like dressed like the characters and had like dance routines. Um, and, but, but like as the characters from the movie, but it wasn't like related to DC. It was like people doing this independently. I don't know if there was like a contest or something, but there was like a lot of those. And I thought that was really interesting because I'd never seen that before with like a superhero movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, like the post that you made about the Alamo draft house, I want to go to Alamo draft house or at least a one. So I can kind of experience this because it sounds like a lot of fun mm-hmm. and that's, that's really cool that they were, like, they had those kind of, like, weird tie-ins, even if it's done independently. And so, and I remember when I first saw it, I think it might, uh, I'm trying to think, was it the opening night? Or it may have been the Saturday of the opening weekend, I think I may have gone. And it was packed house, and I went by myself because, like, I just 
go by, like, if, if I find myself, like, sometimes it's a lot easier for me to go to movies by myself, because, like, I don't have to worry about one seat, I don't have to worry about anything else, I just go, I get, I get my, I'll sneak in a water bottle, because I'm cheap like that, I'll buy candy so I can still give money to the concession, because I don't want to be like that guy, it's like, no, no, I'm just sneaking in all my stuff in my Johnny Jack, nobody pay attention to me, um, and I really enjoyed it upon the first viewing, and even, and, but, I was worried because I had was aware of the critic, like, I don't want to say vile, but, like, just kind of, like, the, it seemed like it was being eviscerated by the critics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of me, like, was te- oh, was really worried because I remember when I saw BVS for the first time, I foolishly glanced at the critics before I went to, like, maybe 20 minutes before <laughs> I saw the movie. And so, like, I'm driving to the movie theater, and I was like, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to a funeral now. Like, I'm so just, like, I, I don't know what to expect. Yeah. And, but I'll get into that on a later day. But, and so, I enjoyed it, and I ended up, I think uh, it was, then it was, like, a few weeks later, it was like, yeah, it, I think it was, like, three or four weeks into its run at this point. I'm like, I'm going to go again, just, I yeah, had nothing. Yeah, I saw it twice, too. Yeah. Oh, oh, nice. Yeah. And, like, it was like, I'm like, ah, it's, it was, it was a Monday night. It was weird that I was not working a Monday night. I'm like, ah, I'll go. And packed house still. And I was like, whoa, this is really something. Mm-hmm. And, of course, our friends at the Suicide Squad cast the uh, show, like, they had those updates every week of the box office on the Suicide Squad. And they said, like, it just keeps going. It was like the Energizer Bunny. It just wouldn't stop. And... Mm-hmm. As we get into the movie itself, we have these very, like, colorful opening logos, and then we're introduced to, uh, in the prison of Bell Rev in Louisiana, we're introduced to both Deadshot and Harley Quinn, and we have, we have songs connected to, like, these characters earlier on. We have House of the Rising Sun by the Animals for, um... Deadshot, we have You Don't Owe Me, I forget which, who does this version of it for Harley Quinn. Then we have A Sympathy for the Devil for Amanda Waller. Your feelings on these introductions and the music ties in with them. Um, so I, I've heard the criticism that one big flaw to this movie is that like almost two-thirds of the movie is just introductions. Uh, I know this this movie has a lot of characters in it. And I guess I'll meet halfway on that. I do think there's too many characters in the movie, but I don't have a problem with the song choice um, at all for each one of the characters. I do think that the logos and the the letters on screen, I feel like I noticed that stuff a lot more the second time around. Like the first time around, I was sort of like writing on a high, like I'm so excited for this movie. I'm just enjoying it. And then the second time, you know, I kind of went in going, okay, I'm going to look for what these people are talking about, the critics and other fans that they don't like about the movie and just sort of, I guess, be a little more open-minded to what they're talking about. And I guess I do agree that, the lettering and stuff that doesn't seem like something that David Ayer came up with, you know, just when you see his other films and it doesn't really fit with the grittiness of the look of the film, because despite the fact that they lightened it up, added more jokes, um, made the tone lighter, added music, the look of the film is very gritty and real. And like when you watch the behind the scenes, they talk about that a lot about how they tried to keep this movie grounded. And I don't really think that the logos and stuff, do that, you know? So I guess that's what I would say. I meet 50, 50 on that. It's interesting. And it definitely kind of makes it unique to say the least. 
And it definitely seems that where what it seemed like how trailers are done, like they go to trailer houses and they like they would independent companies and they cut together footage together for a trailer for the general audience. And from what I can understand is that it was so successful, those trailers, the the, the Ballroom Blitz and the, the Bohemian Rhapsody ones, that they had a trailer house do like a cut of the movie itself. Yeah. And so, and then inserted their, their iterations of like, especially the first act of this movie, because you get this, you get to Midway City, it seems like, all right, that's pretty much all David Ayer, and that's probably David Ayer's vision. The first act definitely seemed like it's a, it's a hodgepodge of people's ideas and when it comes to setting up the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't mind, I don't, I don't mind the intro, like, I don't mind, like, the, like, the statistics for him and everything, but definitely seems, in comparison to the second half of the movie, it does seem a bit jarring. I mean, I, I love, I love, like, a little joke, like, like for Deadshot, like, even, like, he's, he's proficient in so many weapons, including a potato gun, and I'm like, alright, that's, that's funny. And I like <laughs> Will Smith's introduction with the guard, and, like, how he has, yeah. Uh, and like they like they it seems like there's like not much of a poor, but it definitely seems like they've they've done this tryst over and over. They they they've gone round and round of them um, messing with each other and beating the crap out of each other if they if they can. And then we had Harley Quinn's introduction, and it was a little it was a bit odd for me because maybe it's because I always associate Harley Quinn with the Batman the Animated Series, and if even within the confines of that series, she did have some sexual overtones, but it was, like, if you were a kid, you didn't notice them. Like, there's the famous line mm-hmm. in, like, The New Adventures, like, you want to rev your Harley, as she's saying that to Joker. As an adult, you're like, oh, you get the sexual innuendo there. And, but as Margot Robbie's playing it, it's, like, it's very more overt. And for a beat, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I, I will say, as I started to kind of get more into this, um, I, I was reading a little bit more about Harley because my background with her is that as a kid, I really loved that character in Batman the Animated Series. I mean, that's when she was created, and I didn't know that as a little girl when I was watching it, but I loved her. I, I really, really connected and liked that character. As I've gotten older my opinion of her shifted. You know, I started to see her as kind of like this battered woman character that um, is obsessed and stuck in a toxic relationship and uh, very sexualized. I mean, I think before this movie, so like in this movie, that didn't really surprise me because that's the way I saw her. And I was like, she's probably one of the most famous DC characters now and one that little girls really flocked to even before this movie. And I've always thought that was weird that she's so sexual at the same time and that, I don't know, I I had concerns about that. I even remember reaching out to people like on my Facebook and saying, I'm going to dive deep, guys. I want you guys to tell me, why do you love this character so much? Because I loved her as a kid, but as an adult, I'm looking back on it and I'm really questioning, you know, why I liked her so much. And a lot of people, like, wrote to me what they thought, and I um, I decided to go, you know, buy, um, I think that might have been when I bought the Suicide Squad Volume 1, and, um, you know, just get everyone's perspective on it. Because there was a lot of women that, you know, jumped up and said, no, I do love her, and here's why. And I guess I feel like the reason why people like her so much is that she went through all that, and 
she comes out of it, you know, and like by Suicide Squad, she's sort of coming out on the other side. And I think that is empowering. And also, I think it just makes her an interesting character that she's so flawed and damaged and all that. So I get it. I think they have a real opportunity with that character to to make it very positive. But I had a lot of concerns with the, you know, the ads for this movie that were like, relationship goals, you know, Harley and the Joker. And I was really wondering how they were going to balance all that. And uh, so when she was hypersexualizing the movie, I thought, honestly, I kind of thought that was part of the character. It didn't really shock me that much. Huh. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I, oh, go on. I would, I was just going to say like, cause I mean, even like in the suicide squad, like newer comics, I mean, her outfit there is not the same as the one originally. And from what I read, I mean, that's kind of, it seemed like that's the direction they went with the character. And so I had, a, I guess I had a problem with it a little bit, but another thought I had watching the movie is that a lot of these characters are, they're villains, but they're also, it feels like there's like a class hierarchy. Does it seem like that to you in the movie? Like there's a message about we were never going to get beyond this point or that point. Did you ever feel like that? Does that make sense? Well, it definitely, <laughs> seem, no, it, it definitely <laughs> seems like the people in power are definitely looking down upon the criminals that they have control over. Yeah. And I felt like Harley gives this vibe of like, she, she went to school, she became a doctor and all that, but it's almost like deep down, like when she's Harley, she's sort of reverting back to where she came from, so to speak. And it gave off that kind of lower class vibe, you know? And I felt like maybe that's supposed to be part of the sexuality thing. If that makes sense. You know, like like that there's a connection there. Yeah. Or like, oh man, it's like, how do I phrase this the right way? But it's like, I don't know. She seems like she's like a product of where she grew up or, you know, I guess what kind of environment she was in and maybe like the girls that she was around dressed like that and look like that. And so she got away from all that and became a doctor and became serious. But then when she's Harley, it's kind of like she's reverting back or maybe that's, that's just how I saw her. And so maybe like that sexuality is part of that somehow. That's possible, and, and like with this scene here, like it's, it's punctuated when uh, she gets uh, she gets zapped by the electrical uh, electrical bars, and then she runs into the bars headfirst and cracks and like knocks herself out. And and Greg just says like that's a whole lot of pretty and a whole lot of crazy. And for some reason, I think that was like the perfect button to that scene. And I had not experienced Harley Quinn that much outside of. The animated series, yes, I had played the Arkham games, but I never read any of like, her solo series, nor the Suicide Squad um, comic, or the anime movie, uh, Assault on Arkham. Once, after this movie, I did kind of go a little bit further into her stuff, at, like, like I just mentioned. I'm like, okay, her overt sexuality is more commonplace, but even still, when we had the Batman Harley Quinn movie... I was a little like, okay, where she's she's drawn like animated series, yet she's written into situations where it's more like Assault and Arkham or the Suicide Squad comics, and I'm like, uh, I'm not too sure about this. And it was it was kind of I didn't know how I how I felt about that, and I was kind of I immediately had kind of put that at arm's length, like I don't know if I really want to experience this. I know 
I know it's not, it's a, such a judgy kind of fanboy thing, like, it's not my Harley Quinn kind of thing. And I, <laughs> and I didn't want to come off to be that guy. I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this. But... No, I mean, I think it's worth, you know, thinking about because I, I have thought about that a lot. Like, I think on one level, it's like if you're going to portray her as kind of, I guess earlier when I was trying to talk about, like, classism, like, if she's like the kind of girl that before she went to, became a doctor, she worked at a at a bar or a club, like a strip club or something. Like, I feel like they're always kind of pushing that idea that she came from that environment and then got through it or whatever. And then when she's Harley, she's kind of like, that's the, the old girl coming back, you know, in a way, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's on base or not, but that's just like the vibe that I get watching this movie. Um, so if you're going to sell it that way, then I, I kind of can get behind it. I would just say that, you do sort of have to have two different Harley Quinns if you're gonna. You can have this adult version, where you kind of explore, I guess, that side of her. But then you have to have a, a separate one, I think, almost for kids because little girls really gravitate towards that character. And I'm not totally on board with everything she's selling. I guess if that makes sense. It's like I don't want to, like you say, I don't want to, you know, slut shame her or anything. No. But but it it does seem like something that they push really hard. I actually did see that Escape from Arkham cartoon before the movie came out because um, that came out before, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I did. Yeah, I saw that before I saw the movie. So so yeah, I walked in just sort of expecting that, and that's kind of the way that I view her. And, it, and that was one of my complaints online. I was like, you know, we're we're finally getting a a main female character, but she's very sexual. So what what does that mean, you know? And you know, explain it to me, guys. And that's kind of when I got a lot of feedback from people about that. So I think by the time I saw the movie, I was kind of more on board with it. But in a bigger sense, yeah, I think it's something that's worth exploring. I I don't know what they will do with her going forward. Like, will they continue pushing that in the second movie? Um, It seems like Margot Robbie really wants to have, you know, a lot of say and control over how the character is portrayed. So she may alter that herself because that might not be a a choice that she made. You know, (laughs) it may just, she's just playing a part. She's an actress, you know, so... So I don't know. Now that she kind of has more invested in it, um, that may change. Now I'm just imagining. I'm offer. I am altering the deal, pudding. Pray I don't alter it anymore. And then she goes <laughs> skipping away. Uh, last thing I'll say about this: I remember I was going to a a geek centric uh, store in a local mall near me, and they had the Harley Quinn costume. And so I walk over to it, like with the daddy little daddy's little monster T-shirt and like the bottoms. And I pick up the bottoms, and I'm like. These are really small. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I feel like yeah. I'm like, They're wow, pants. yeah, those are. I'm like, wow, I'm like, I know it's, I know I'm coming off sounding like such a prude. I know that it's not, I'm not <laughs> like that whatsoever. Or I'm like, or trying to sound like I'm slushing. I'm just like, I'm like that takes a lot of confidence to rock those. So you know what? If yeah. you can do that, by all means. But her outfit's very like inspired by roller derby, and those girls do dress like that. And that is like a, you know, a sport that has a lot of contact and it's tough, but they, they do kind of dress like that. So, you know, it's kind of, it, it is a weird line. It's like, is it empowering or is it not empowering? I don't know. It kind of depends. Um, uh, after watching the movie, you kind of have to decide, like, are you on board with that or is it a good thing or a bad thing? I, you know, I think it's worth talking about. Right. And so 
we're introduced to uh, Viola Davis, who plays Amanda Waller, and she's talking to um, um, two, uh, one, two representatives of the government and saying she wants to launch Task Force X again, or at least try to anyway, because this is in the wake of the death of Superman. Mm-hmm. And I totally forgot that Hopper from Stranger Things is the secretary. <laughs> yeah. I think Secretary of Defense yeah. um, in this, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, now we have to have him back at this point. Uh, that's how what I want. And then we're introduced to one by one. We're introduced to we get a fur- further introduction to Harley Quinn with the Joker. We'll get to her in a second. We have El Diablo, and we only get like one shot of him like leaving his house as he's on fire as he gave himself up. We have Captain Boomerang played by Jack Courtney. And I love, like, I was not a fan of Jack Courtney as an actor going into this. I came out a fan of Jack Courtney because of this performance. A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I got excited just seeing the teaser trailers with him. Like, I, I don't know, I just really like the way that they translated that character. Uh, sort of like for, I guess, a modern viewer. They took this, like, really silly, crazy-looking character and just made him... I don't know, like believable almost <laughs> as believable as a guy that throws boomerangs could be. But, um, but no, I, I had no idea who Jai Courtney was and I walked out of that movie loving him. So yeah, totally agree. I mean, boomerang is a, like a, a silver age villain. I mean, mm-hmm. and like within the confines of this grounded universe, quote unquote, I mean, that's something that can't really work. Like something like the flash TV show, which is more very heightened and very in, it's more of accepting of his comic roots. Like, yeah, Captain Boomerang totally works on that, and he does. Um, and I love how we get we get. I, I was I had such a big smile on my face when we saw the Flash, even for a moment. Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah. And I was like, I'm like, uh, I was like, uh, when I first got the Blu-ray, I immediately jumped to that scene because I just wanted to watch the Flash scene, even though he's on he's on screen for maybe four seconds. Like that's and that's so that's so. It gets me giddy, and I love the mm-hmm. fact that it's shot by Zack Snyder while they're shooting Justice League, and then just inserted that into uh, here, where it's used to kill a croc. And then in the extended cut, we get this a David Ayer cameo as one of the mm. guards. Yeah, he's the one asking um, Griggs about, is this guy really a mutation? And that's actually David Ayer playing one of the SWAT guys. <laughs> and so, and then we, we're introduced to Enchantress, um... Played by uh, Cara Delevingne, and I almost forgot um, Jay Hernandez playing El Diablo. I didn't want to. I almost forgot about name dropping him. And so we see Enchantress, or we see um, Doctor Moon go into the cave and find the Enchantress, the statue, and she merely breaks the statue. That's not an accident. She broke the head off of that trophy, <laughs> and I'm like. Like, dude, that's an artifact. And like, you know, at that point, I'm like, all right, you deserve to get possessed. I'm sorry, you went in there. You just like <laughs> you, you broke that like heirloom right there. You, you deserve to get possessed. I'm sorry. Um, and then we find out about her skill set, and then, like you said before, we have another introduction because we see a second pitch of the task force X to the the Pentagon. Do you think this is a little redundant? Yeah, it it does feel like like I said the second time I watched this movie, I went in with the criticisms that I'd heard and that and I did agree. It did feel like there's a little too much setup in this movie, but it's understandable because we don't know who these characters are. 
I just think maybe the solution would have been to pare down some of these characters. You know, um, I, I don't know if you want to jump into this yet, but I don't know that we needed Enchantress. I feel like we had plenty of people to choose from as a main villain already. So it was kind of weird to um, to introduce her as part of the team. She doesn't really fit with the tone of the movie. Everyone else is, I mean, I guess Croc is meta, but not really. And so I don't, I don't know. I just don't think she, her magic stuff really fits in. I know a lot of people speculated that maybe this was going to lead into like Justice League Dark and that's why they did this. I don't know what their plan was, but it didn't really blow for me. And yeah, the second part talking about what everyone can do all over again does feel redundant. I mean, because in the comics, this run that I've read of John Ostrander, that Professor like Dr. Moon is like trying to control it. It's very much, it almost mirrors like Jean Grey and the Dark Phoenix or, or the Phoenix. Oh, okay. And like, that's how I kind of taken it. Like, it's like a second personality that has these powers that she's trying to control it. And at one point, in the Suicide Squad run, like, she's supposed to just, like, open a portal and they all just get out of Russia at this point, and she can't. And so they have to find a new transportation to get them out of Russia with the Penguin in tow. And so maybe if we saw them work together and Enchantress was not the villain yeah. here, and then she became the villain second time around, maybe that they, maybe it would have sat a little bit better with people. Yeah, because she didn't really feel connected to anyone else to me. And, uh, you know, she has that relationship with um, Rick Flagg. And so I get why he's motivated, but I don't know. It just felt like she was too separate from them other than that. I mean, they don't really share a lot of scenes together. And, you know, she kind of becomes the bad guy pretty quick after that, I feel like. And, yeah, I just kind of, I don't know. She just didn't really fit. That's where I keep saying she didn't really fit into the movie. She definitely seemed like, I don't know if it was a, if that was a mandate by Warner Brothers or that was a decision on David Ayer. I know David Ayer has admitted that since the movie came out, he shouldn't have made her the villain and it should yeah. have been the Joker. And or Amanda Waller, honestly, I would mean, have she, been a great, you know, main she, villain too. She really is the villain. So, yeah. I but mean, they could have made it more obvious, I guess, because yeah, I, I do feel like she is, but you could have made that like the central conflict, you know. But making it this extra person that doesn't really have a lot of connection, other than she's on the squad too, it just—I don't know—it just didn't really fit for me. That's fair. I mean, it's because she doesn't share any of the scenes other than with Flag until the yeah. end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's no real big connection we just know that she's got this evil other side and it wants to take over the world but again it just feels too disconnected whereas everything else in the movie is made so personal you know harley's obsession with the joker and deadshot and his family like they're very personal conflicts even um what's his name uh jay hernandez Diablo. Diablo. um you know his conflict it's very personal. So it would make sense to make like the bad guy someone that they have a personal connection with, like the Joker or Amanda Waller, someone that, um, you know, and, and to sort of play on that idea of family and connection in that way. And they kind of try to do that in the movie, but it does feel, I think, because there isn't a big connection with the bad guy. And the bad guy's goal is not a deep personal 
conflict. It's just, I want to take over the world because I'm evil, I guess. You know, like, there's not... The motivation isn't deep enough, I think. I mean, like, I used to rule. Now I don't. I want that back. And so it's... Yeah, there's not, like, some other reason, you know? Like, you could do something, again, with, like, the Joker and his control over Hirely, or you could do something with Amanda Waller and her control over them, but... If, if it's just some crazy evil person, I, I don't know. It just, that's not really, that's too, yeah, it's too mustache twirly for me. I don't know. It just, that that was a big issue with the movie, I think. I mean, I think it's confounded because the fact that we've come through Man of Steel, whose Zod's only purpose is to protect Krypton by any means necessary, and Kal-El destroys any opportunity, and that's why they had their fight, and that's why Cal has to kill him. Mm-hmm. And then in BVS, we have Lex Luthor, who was arguably one of the most powerful people in the world until Superman came to fruition, and the embodiment of God, and how God did not protect him from Daddy's fist, as as the explanation he has on the helipad. And mm-hmm. so, and like that, those are deep personal issues for those villains. And here it's like, I used to rule, and I'm like, yeah. I mean, it just seems rather flimsy. Right. It's like. They're philosophical differences, right? Like with uh, with Superman and Zod, it's you know he he thinks his people are the the main people that should survive, and you know Superman's like we had our chance basically, and I'm on their side. It's like a philosophical difference there. And then same thing with BBS. It's like uh, even between Batman and Superman, it's how they view. Uh, a moral question, and 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 also with uh, like you're mentioning with Lex Luthor, but here you don't have that level of, of depth. <laughs> so no. it's like it's just not. You're. I feel like the audience can always tell when it's not strong enough, and I think a lot of the movies where people have a really hard time with that, it, it is usually to me when the when the villain is too weak. You know, when there's not enough of a direct conflict. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things uh, there's a author by the name of John Truby, who's a screenwriting teacher, and, and, and just a teacher of writing, and saying that there should always be a moral conflict between the hero and villain. I think that's what, and like, you look at, most recently, Black Panther is textbook of Drew, John Truby's steps of writing a perfect villain. Right. And then Killmonger and Black Panther have such a huge, like, such a diametrically opposed moral view of the world, and that's why they immediately come in conflict at so many different times. Mm-hmm. And for this, it's like, all right, yeah, it's like, all right, it's, it's just like, yeah, like, well, I want to rule the world. And it's, like you said, not a philosophical meaning behind it. Uh, you've mentioned the Joker, your feelings on the flashbacks with at Arkham Asylum with uh, Joker and Heath, uh, oh, I said Heath, I just suppose, wow, Jared Leto's performance. <laughs> yeah, I know, like, wow, that was, that's a Freudian slip right there. Ironically, <laughs> we're talking about Dr. Harley Quinn, Wow. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna be shameful standing in the corner now. <laughs> well, um, I might be joining you because I've got some I, some thoughts on the, the Joker stuff, and I do think it's gonna get me some some tweets. All Sorry, right. guys, here I go. Um, Put, puts on but... <laughs> vest. All right, yeah. go. Yep. Okay. So number one, um, when when I watched the extended edition, I was probably as excited as you are. I thought, oh my gosh, we're gonna get to see like David Ayer's True Vision, and I don't feel like we get that with the extended version. Um, and I will say that the, the the extra scenes with the Joker, and when I say extra, I don't mean like he gave us a bunch of extra Joker stuff because he didn't, but I mean this flashback stuff here. It felt to me like 
I don't know. It didn't feel like part of the movie to me. Some of it, it felt like they had to put it in there. And when they did all those like filters and quick edits, did you think that part was weird? Like I, I just felt that it looked like scenes that like extra footage they shot and they're trying to like fit it into this part of the movie. And I don't know that all that landed for me, especially like when she's on the table and stuff. I thought that part was kind of weird. And then, um, visually, I think when she falls into that acid thing, that's really cool. And I like that, but it just kind of felt like pushed in there real quick. Did you feel that way? (laughs) Because it was, no, it was, it was well known that they, they shot so many different takes of scenes where like, you just kind of let them go and let them kind of almost improv in front of the camera. So there's, by millions of feet of footage of different ways that Joker can approach that scene or that Leto can approach that scene. And mm-hmm. so the quick cuts, I feel like, like, hey, we fell in love with a bunch of different versions of this reading. Yes. So let's, okay, that's, let's... that's what I mean. And but how do you feel about his mannerisms and his way he holds himself and how he interacts with people? Um... I don't know. I, you know, I guess I'm 50-50 on it in the sense that I don't feel like we saw enough of it to truly get the character. Um, you know, they give you that quick scene with, uh, where he's in the club, um, and terrible misuse of Common there. I hate that part. Yeah. They played up like, oh, Common's going to be in this movie. I'm like, yeah, I really like him. I was watching a lot of, um, Hell on Wheels when this came out. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, he's like on that show. So I was like, Oh, you know, I want to see this. And then they kill him immediately. I don't know why he was there. I don't really even know why that scene happened, I guess, just to show that he can turn on a dime, but it it feels like they were trying to really get us to understand their relationship. But I don't feel like we do after all these scenes. Um, the Batmobile scene is really good. We can talk about that if you want to kind of get into that scene. I really, really liked it. Um, I thought that was probably the best of the flashback. Maybe that in the, the acid scene. Uh, as far as Leto's performance, again, I don't know that we got enough to really get what he was going for, but I wasn't super crazy about what I saw. I, I thought that, I don't know. It's like, I thought if he's going to go gangster, go all the way, you know? I like the idea that he's supposed to be modern gangster, but I felt like all the tattoos and, like, his outfits sort of pulled away from that because what gangster is he emulating there, right? I, I mean, there's probably... Because, like, if you take a look at, like, David Ayer's previous work, like, specifically, like, Training Day that he wrote or End of Watch, where he definitely, like, his... Forte is definitely, like, South Central, Los Angeles kind of gangs, mm-hmm. and it seems like he's very um, well-versed in that, and probably in modern gangs that there is a lot of tattoos involved and anything, and so I guess that's what he's trying to do, and but, trying to, go on. Yeah, oh, but do, do, I don't know how else to say this, do white guys do that? You know what I mean? Like, like the stuff that he's wearing is not his culture. You know what I mean? It didn't seem to fit. Like, he looked like he walked out of, like, a Macklemore video. (laughs) It just didn't feel authentic to me. You know, if he was Hispanic or he was black, I guess all that would make sense. But otherwise, it's like he's just dressed up like he's in a rap video, but it doesn't feel like that's him to me. 
So I guess if, that was my problem. Like, if he was going to go gangster, he should go gangster that fits him. You know, like I, I feel like he could have picked a different gangster direction. I guess is what I'm saying. And so you're saying his biggest crime is cultural appropriation. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's like, <laughs> I, I, see, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get in so much trouble. It, 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 I guess it felt that way to me because it didn't seem like him, like the weird accent or not accent, but his mannerisms and the way he's portraying himself was sort of almost like old school gangster, but then he's dressed the way he's dressed and has those tattoos. So it's modern. Like, what is it? Like, I don't feel like he fit into any group. Like I, I get what you're saying with the tattoos and stuff. And I do think that there are like, you know, uh, white guys that have tattoos and they're gangsters, but I don't know. It just, I don't, I guess I, maybe I don't know enough about gangs and gangsters. I, I don't see that. Like, I almost feel like, you know, maybe if he looked, I don't know, like more like, if you're going to go that route, maybe more like a, a biker, like a bike, like something that would fit him. Does that make sense? Man, what if I get like death threats after this? You're not going to. I, I don't think I don't think anybody like in MS13 listens to my show, so I think we should be fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm reading like, yeah, Joker has a lot of different looks, so he sort of built this from a looks throughout the history of DC Comics, a new sort of flair and flavor him. So it feels like a modern-day gangster because he's always been a gangster, says Ayer in a entertainment uh, uh, EW article. And so, yeah, it definitely seems like, especially how he, he enunciates himself and how he holds himself. Like, I want to see another version to make my final verdict. Like you, I'm just like, I enjoy it because it's different. He didn't. Yeah. He didn't do. A, he didn't just do a carbon copy of Heath Ledger, which I am commendable for. However, doesn't mean I'm 100 percent sold on this take just yet. And like, like watching it this time, the one flashback moment when Harley sees the motorcycle and she thinks about when she um, chased down the Joker, and just that scene alone, for some reason, it really irks me. Like how he was like, like I, I'm, I am not capable of love. I am. An idea, and I'm like, all right, guy, like, yeah, it just seems like, uh, like, next level, like, <laughs> privileged douchey. That doesn't seem gangster. Like, no, I, I guess like Harley really, you know, uh, Margot Robbie really embodied that look that they were going for. You know, I felt like her, her demeanor, her accent, her, her tattoos, her look, I bought it. Like a hundred percent, I think that she was going for a specific feel, and it, it felt like that, and it seemed to fit her. I just felt like the Joker and his look and the weird voice he was doing. I didn't really feel like all that fit, you mm. know, not in the same way. I guess, like, you know, if he was gonna do that, it's like it's almost like he should have taken it and like. I don't know, more of like a punk rock direction or something that fit his look. But to go, yeah, I guess like I know cultural appropriation like can be a triggering word for some people, but it, it did feel like it wasn't really him to me, I guess. Right. Um, it's, like I, it's like I keep wanting to circle around that over and over. Again. Yeah, I know. I'm so, sorry if yeah. I offend people by using that term, but um, – um, I'm reading up on his, like, his preparation. Like, he spent a lot of time alone listening to gospel music from the 1920s. It's, like, all over the place. He's, like, mysticism. Yeah, like, Shavonism, Sh Shakespearean. And I'm, like, 
it I just none of that really is any of that the Joker? I don't know. <laughs> oh man. I, I, I find it so weird because <laughs> like he's pretty much a blender in this in this movie. Yeah. With so much stuff thrown in, it's coming out like it's a blender without a top. Like it, everything's flying out at once, and you're like, all right. And then you see Blade Runner 2049 and how he is laser focused in his portrayal yeah. of that movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I know Leto can do that. And I'm just like, and I'm looking at it like, wow, this is like, we could have got something kind of scary. Like, what are you saying? Like, for as a punk rock, like, like a Sid Vicious version of Joker, which we did kind of get in Leto's performance, like, in like, kind of like his dress apparel and kind of like, yeah. and, and everything. But like, if you want to like full Gary Oldman, like Sid and Nancy kind of thing, I could have bought that. I would have went with it. Or how about, you know, uh, I heard that Margot Robbie was really cha- channeling um, like kind of mob wives from like Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. And, and I really got that from her performance and I thought it made sense. So even though her look wasn't like that, her just like what she was kind of selling made sense to me. And I feel like it would have been cool if he had done that too, you know, like in the flashbacks with his hair, not in flashbacks, but like later in the, in the movie, when she's given that vision from Enchantress where she like imagines they're married and like the way that he looks, they do kind of look like that. Like, I don't know, like Italian mob family esque. And that would have been cool if he channeled that a little more. I I think just whatever he picks, just make it feel more authentic. Maybe not, you know, it wasn't so much cultural appropriation as it was. I didn't really feel sold on it. It's like his look didn't really match his personality. And and even there, I, I don't really know where he was going with it. I wish he would have picked one thing and just channeled that, you know? Right. Because <laughs> um, I feel like, to me, personally, if you're going to go the sort of, like, I guess, like, gangster route, uh, I think the way that the Joker looks like in Injustice 2, the second game, that looks really cool. He looks modern. He looks... Um, you know, cleaned up, and he's, like, I guess they make him more attractive, but it still looks authentic to me, and just this look that he has in this movie is just, like you said, it's a blender. It's too much stuff. Yeah. It's um, like they're trying to include too many details. And like I said, it's weird because the stuff they did with Harley makes sense to me completely, but with him, I'm like, what is happening here? And I guess, like, when you're talking about his preparation... And I read that too. It, that that makes it make sense to me. I'm like, so he wasn't sure. I guess. <laughs> no, it definitely it definitely seemed like a vision was not concrete going forward, and they just kind of want to, I guess, just find it on the day. And it definitely shows. But um, like you mentioned before, one of the flashbacks is when it's Batman comes to apprehend them, and they drive the purple Lamborghini into the water. We find that Harley can't swim. And Joker, in Joker fashion, like he does. He abandons Harley. If, if it's going to come to him going back to Har- Arkham, he will abandon mm-hmm. Harley. Um, and I know people got up in arms when Harley plays possum. Batman swims up to her, and she pulls a knife on him, and he, cl- he cold clocks her to knock her out. I and, thought that was a cool scene. I, I really like this whole sequence. Yeah, and then he goes to give her mouth to mouth, and she kisses him, and he's like, ugh. And he's... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's that's Harley Quinn. That's I Harley Quinn would do that to me. Exactly. Yeah. And and I felt even that scene, her chemistry with the Joker in that scene made more sense to me. Like him abandoning her and their, you know, kind of crazy out of control uh, relationship that they have, and it seems dangerous and risky. Like there's so much there. I feel like they could have really explored and and done stuff with. 
And I feel like that one scene is more effective than all the other scenes. And also I think it's cool. I was reading that, or I, I was watching the behind the scenes um, and that whole car scene, like, you know, they really plunged a car into water and she really held her breath. Like Margot Robbie said, she held her breath for up to like five minutes. Whoa. Yeah. That they trained her. They were like, when you're down there, you know, there's going to be a point where you want, you know, your instincts are going to kick in. You're going to want to like live. It's going to be scary. And they like trained her for that scene. And so that's why it looks so good because it's, it's real, you know, she's really down there. And I thought that was really cool. Because it's a long take because mm-hmm. like we're it following is. like an over the shoulder shot as Batman swims up to her and it mm-hmm. lasts like me like 30 to 45 seconds. And like you imagine like how long it takes to set that up, like get the cameras rolling and everything and then to do the take and then cut and then have the divers swim up with her with an oxygen tank. Yeah, like, it makes sense that you would have to go to that kind of training. And I, I have no problem with it. I do think it's a waste to kill Common that you have him there for like a day. It was so upsetting. I was like, why? Why? <laughs> so upset. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I, that it, that whole scene was kind of like, I, I get what they were trying to do with it, but again, it just, we either didn't get enough of it or there were just too many other scenes we were being thrown. I don't, I don't know, but it doesn't, it doesn't stick out to me. You know, it doesn't stick out to me as a, as necessary or as a scene that establishes their relationship very much. Yeah. And like, I understand like trying to like to establish the fact that he's the king of crime in Gotham city and but like, mm-hmm. yeah, and, yeah. He, and he's able to gun down a, a major competitor in front of a whole club and nobody like, we don't see anybody react to it. So there's no real resonance. We don't even see him actually get shot. It's another weird edit of him. We just hear him kind of die off screen. Right. It's like they're afraid to pull punches when they need to. And yeah, I don't know. It's like if we're going to show how evil he is, just do it. You know, I, I don't know. It's weird. Unless mm-hmm. there was something it was different and they kind of cut around it. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. Because like, like I said, it's like I feel like we don't get to see that scene long enough to know why it's there. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Uh, and so... Since we spoke about Batman and flashbacks, we have a Deadshot uh, flashback where we see uh-huh. him um, on the job. And I, Will Smith just exudes so much charisma, no matter what For he does. Sure. And he's all in on this movie. Like, I think he and Harley specifically, like, or him and Margot Robbie, they're, they're fully invested in this film. And I think it really shows. And, you know, it made, the movie made a lot of money, so they're going to make a second one. But I, I really feel like their enthusiasm for their characters really comes through and, and, and even fans that maybe didn't like this movie can see that potential. But yeah, I, I actually think this is one of the better flashbacks in the movie. One of the stronger ones for sure. I mean, and we also see snowfall in Gotham. So I know Andy Dijanova, he loves Christmas time and Gotham city. So I know he was <laughs> happy for that. And it's always nice to see snowfall in comic book movies. Um, and we see him walking around with his daughter, and it's funny, like you were saying, like, with Will Smith's enthusiasm for this role, I was so taken by his performance in this, and John Nostrander, like I mentioned before, who was writing the 80s era of the Suicide Squad, he did write an offshoot with just a Deadshot storyline, and it was mm-hmm. called, like, Deadshot, I think it was beginning, so I think it's out of my reach right now, like, it's, it's on my dresser, and... It's, it goes into like a, a brief history of Deadshot, how he came to be, and it's really cool because and all that came out of Will Smith's performance. I have um, 
minor nitpick because I don't like the dialogue that's given to the daughter in the scene. Okay, it go seems ahead. Little, it seems a little flat. <laughs> it seems, I, I, understand, I understand child actors are not as adept in, in emotion, uh, not, not emotion, but being emotive and with the dialogue. And sometimes if it's really clunky, a child can have a hard time with it. I mean, this scene only, I have a problem with, like, later scene when we see the the projection of her what, uh, before Deadshot, before the very end, and they came about to shoot the C4, she's much better there. And then the resolution at the end, I, I think those two scenes are incredible. It's just this moment here, like, Daddy, I know you're a bad guy, but it's all right. I, I don't know why. It's just something that just doesn't ring true to those words. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't have that thought, but but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, I, I know it's it's a it's a minor nitpick at best. I know that it was just something that's kind oh, of. Oh no! Yeah, that's fine. And then we see Batman descend like how was like in Batman eighty nine in the background with this with this cape uh, billowing, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then we have the little scuffle between the two of them. And if his daughter didn't get away, would have he gotten the drop on Batman? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, you know, Deadshot is really, really good at what he does. So, it's hard to say. Yeah, and like, <laughs> we don't see him, like, grab a bat or anything. He's kind of just standing there, like, I'm like, would that have happened? Would he have gotten the drop on him? Or was it a test? Yeah. I don't know, you know? And then we see him with, we see bat handcuffs, which is also always a lot of fun to see. Yes. Um, <laughs> and one last, like, kind of flashback we'll talk about, we have Rick Flagg played by Joel Kinnaman, and you are a fan of Joel Kinnaman because you watched The Killing, correct? I love The Killing. I was so obsessed with that show. I loved the first season. It's definitely, like I've told you before, a slow burn. I mean, it's a slow show. It's about detective work, and it's, it's yeah, it's, I guess, more accurate in that way, but it's such a great story, great payoff, and it's one of those shows that just kept getting canceled. Like, it, they would be like, that first season wrapped up, and they were like, we're done. And they were like, nope, there's going to be a season two. Don't worry. Uh, you know, we're going to have another season. Because I think, I don't think it was always on Netflix. I think before it was on TV. It was AMC, then, I think. AMC, yeah. And and then I think Netflix picked it up for the second season. Or maybe it was the third season. But anyway, they picked them up. And then they were like, okay, it's canceled again. And they were like, nope, we're going to do one more season. <laughs> like, it was like so... It just made me an even bigger fan because I was, like, obsessed with the progress of it and really, really, like, I thought it was so underrated. And I thought both of them after that were going to get pretty famous. Um, I'm, I'm glad that Jill's doing so well now uh, with, like, you know, Altered Carbon and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan of his. I think he does a really, really good job. He kind of plays Rick Flagg uh, not the same as his character in uh, in The Killing, but definitely, like, that more... Like, the way that he talks is a little bit similar. Like, I don't know. Where the background of the char- that character is supposed to be, it's kind of similar. Right. If you go back and watch it, yeah. And I I, I enjoy Joel Kinnaman in this. And I understand, like, him, like his character kind of falling for Dr. June Moon because they they spent so much time together. There's only, like, one or two lines. I think it was just, maybe it's not him. Maybe it's just kind of, like, odd dialogue. And one of them is, like, later on in the movie when... They're flying into Midway City, and he's like, I'm a soldier, and you're a serial killer that takes credit cards. Like, the second line, I like. For some reason, just like how he reads, like, I'm just like, I'm a soldier, like, and I'm a big boy, too. Like, and, I, and I'm just like, yeah. like, I dress myself in the morning, like, all right there, sir, I, I take you very seriously. 
Well, and I feel like there's, I don't know, to me, I felt like there was an undercurrent, and I don't know if this was supposed to be the main part of the story, and it just kind of got lost a little bit, but kind of going back to that scene you're talking about with Batman, I really like that scene because I felt like it really portrayed this idea that, like, even though Batman's are the good guy, he's he's the hero, in this situation, you're supposed to feel at least from the little girl's perspective and and from Will Smith's perspective, more conflicted, right? Because, you know, he's, he's going to take him away and it sort of feels like they're selling this idea in the movie that while these characters are villains, they're also kind of in an unfair situation that doesn't have a real way out, or at least that's kind of what I picked up on. So with uh, Joel Kinnaman's character, I feel like he does a little bit of grandstanding in that scene because he's also kind of feeling he's under Waller, you know, and he can't. And and so he's like establishing I'm better than you. Yeah, I kill people, but I am a soldier. I'm better than you. And then, you know, he's sort of trying to bring him back down to his level. And there's like a lot of like, to me in the movie, there's a lot of like hierarchy going on with that, you know, with the team and then Rick Flagg and then Amanda Waller. And then in the end, the big bad guy is the person that's above all of them, Amanda, you know, and it, I felt like there's, a, there's supposed, there's supposed to be a conflict there about that, I feel like, <laughs> but it gets kind of lost in this movie. It's so funny that you kind of put that like, because yeah, it seemed like I never realized that until you pointed it just out to me right there. Yeah, there is a kind of, like, a hierarchy of, like, of, like, from the squad themselves to Flag to Waller, then to Enchantress, and just how, kind of, or in the perception of each other, in their, like, almost like a caste system. Yeah, it's like, you know, he's being controlled through June, but he doesn't really trust Waller. He's He's got this, you know, idea that I'm a soldier, I follow orders, I'm doing the right thing. But at the end of the day, it's like he's he's lower on that totem pole than he'd like to think. And, you know, this whole movie, he sort of comes to terms with he can't just follow orders towards the end. But, yeah, I don't know. I felt like there were so many interesting levels to that that they never really play with. They really could have played that part up, I thought. You know, that, like, a lot of these characters, they're being forced, you know, they have this chip in their neck and they're being forced to do these things. And is that really right? Just because they're criminals, is it okay to do that? And that little, you know, uh, moment between him and Deadshot where he's basically kind of like, you know, you're just like me. You're, you're also being held with your feet to the fire. And he's kind of like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm so much better than you. I'm a soldier, but soldiers do follow orders. I don't know. There's just, I felt like there's a lot of interesting stuff there. They just don't they just don't go into it. And I wonder if David Ayer was going to go into it, especially with some of his previous movies and how he felt about, you know, the way people are portrayed, uh, especially like, you know, he talks a lot about uh, Diablo being like the people he grew up with and what that's like. And, you know, he cares about that aspect. So I wondered if that was supposed to be in this movie in some on some level. Right. And it's. It's fascinating because, like, when they agreed to, like, the Pentagon agrees to greenlight Task Force, Task Force X, and so Waller and Flag go and visit Bell Rev. We see Diablo and, and um, Killer Croc in, uh, up close. I love how Flag doesn't really flinch at Croc. I really love that moment between the two of them. Uh, I know that Diablo does not want to be used as a weapon because he feels like his powers are too power are too 
uncontrollable, especially if he gets into a really tense situation. And one of my favorite scenes is when it's the shooting range scene with yeah yeah with Deadshot. And I know, like, like the little humor when he, Deadshot pulls the gun on Griggs, who, who's been messing with him all throughout the movie, and and I love how that we, we find out, like, oh, it's it's probably full of blanks, but no, it's it's live ammunition, all the guns in front of him. So he starts firing at all the targets, and he does not miss. And I love how the fact that Kanye West, Black Skinhead, comes in, and a little side story: when that song came out, that was like one of like the anthems I would, well, my friends I would blast at college. Whenever mm-hmm. we would go to parties, like, because my friend Blaze, I know he, he'll he get a kick out of this because he's a huge Kanye fan. And so I remember, like, we were, it's a house party. Everybody's playing beer pong, and everybody's screaming at the top of their lungs to the lyrics to this song. And so when this came on in the theater, I was like, oh, like, uh, I, 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 for some reason, I got really giddy. I don't know why. <laughs> and then the, the punctuation of the scene is when he showed off his skills, and he's talking to Flag about all the things he's demanding. And Joel Kim is trying his damnedest not to laugh in that scene. Mm-hmm. And I just love it. Where he's just like, he's trying, like, he's smirking a little bit, like, like, well, my daughter all the best schools and everything. And, like, like Ivy League. Yeah, yeah, Ivy League. Like, one of those uh, real good joints. I love their interaction scene. I don't know how you yeah. feel. No, I do. And, and again, I feel that, I mean, it's pretty obvious they're creating like a, a parallel between those two characters. And, you know, towards the end, they really meet in the middle. But I, I feel like they're both kind of on the same level. Like, even though Rick Flagg has risen to the ranks that he's at, I feel like he's a guy that ha- is pretty like street smart, you know. And I think he rose to the point that he's at from that point. And I feel that Will Smith's character is the same way. You know, he's an incredible assassin, but he didn't go to an Ivy league school or, you know, his character didn't. And so they're kind of on the same wavelength, I feel like. And, uh, I think Will Smith points that out a lot in the movie. And then in the end it's, you know, they really are. Yeah. And Viola Davis is like throwing her weight around and like, and she keeps flagging line. I just love that. She's able to do this without like, she doesn't have to chew the scenery or anything like that. She's just so cold and yeah, just, like, just calculating. I think she's one of my favorite parts of the movie. My the only thing that I will say, as I guess, not really a critique, but just as something that was surprising to me, I guess because I had seen her character in that Arca movie, I understood who she was, and I'd seen her like a few other times in other DC stuff. So I knew she was like, you know, she's cold blooded as I say in the, I think they say that in the movie, but uh, I've heard a complaint from other people that she does things that seem out of character in the movie, almost like because she's playing it so cool, we don't realize what she's capable of. Um, and so there, you know, I had a friend that was like, this part, the part where we'll get into it later, but where she kills some people, um, they're like, that part was over the top and not realistic. And I'm like, actually, it's exactly what she would do. Yeah. But, uh, people that don't know who that character is say that a lot. So I guess the movie didn't set her up enough for people to buy that, which again, it surprises me because I don't see that. But then again, I, I can't deny that I do have an idea about who she is already before I walk into this movie. But I think it, it's nothing that she did wrong. As far as I'm concerned, like her performance is great. I think she's cold. I think she's scary. I guess she just goes to a level that maybe we should have had a hint of earlier, not based on her performance, but just written into the script. 
Yeah, because there's been so much set up in this movie, and like her backstory, Amanda Waller's origin is tragic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but but also just like how she's able to take life by and she's able to not be she will not be defeated by life and that she will persevere. Like that's something that could have been shown and like maybe that would have humanized her too much and we couldn't have seen her as a kind of a antagonist that, that she becomes. But it may have made that scene later on more like people have been like, Okay, we buy why she would do that. Mm-hmm. I think you need to set up something that makes her executing people believable. But, um, you know, like I said, to me, it was believable because I know she's capable of that, but I understand, you know, some audience members saying that that wasn't set up enough. I'm like, yeah, I guess it wasn't, you know, they, they talk about her being scary and they talk about her being tough and she does seem scary and she does seem tough, but they don't really say why, (laughs) you know? And so you don't really see it till later. And, And I mean, at this point, Joel, Kinnaman's character doesn't know she could take it that far yet. Like, nobody does in the movie, so it's kind of like a surprise. But maybe they should have just hinted at it, I guess, a little bit more. Yeah. And so, after this, Enchantress um, kind of escapes the grasp of Amanda Waller and Rick Flagg and brings her brother Incubus to life in Midway, Sir- in Midway City, the home of the Thanagarians of the Golden Age uh, Hawkman Hawk Girl. And he starts, Incubus starts wreaking havoc in the city. Uh, Amanda Waller tries to subdue um, Incubus with Enchantress, not knowing that they're related. And Enchantress escapes, despite Waller trying to destroy the heart, that the kind of ace in the hole of trying to kill Enchantress does not work. And so Enchantress um, transforms from her, uh, her traditional witch garb to a like a high priestess or, or or like a kind of like a queen garb i should say your feelings on that that costume change um i don't have a problem with the costume itself i would say this is the part of the movie where i'm starting to go uh-oh <laughs> because i mean i feel like they set up all this really cool stuff and now it's like never mind magic you know and and i i do i don't know i don't know how i feel about the train part where uh she turns her brother uh, or turns that guy into, I guess, her brother, and then she does this costume change. Like, that whole scene, it feels like, I guess, like, very rushed and very, like, like I don't know where this is going now kind of thing. Yeah. It, def- so, it definitely seems like a plot of another movie is crowbar its way in. Yeah, it's like, what? Like, you know, I don't feel like we even have really enough time to understand. Like, I felt like I I got what was happening the second time I watched it a little bit better, but the first time, I mean, I understand it's her brother, but I just felt like all that stuff happened so quickly. You know? Yeah, and, and like, the fact that, like, oh, she's building a machine because humanity is worse of technology instead of her. Those are, like, really big ideas to, like, blast through. Yeah, (laughs) And, and then what is the machine? What does it do? Yeah, and, like, again, how does that fit into the, all the other conflicts we've set up so far in the movie? You know, there's a lot about family, about, you know, being unable to get out of your situation, about us versus them. What is this part? How does this relate to all that? It doesn't feel – it does feel like it's part of a different movie, like you said. 
Yeah, I mean, like... It's like turning into Ghostbusters. Kind of. (laughs) I mean, if Zool popped up and like, you know what, all right, I I guess we said it in the squad. I guess the squad will do something about that. I don't know. But um, one of your former guests on your uh, show, uh, San Ottman, who who hosts the JLU podcast, and he does Mm -hmm. the breakdowns of of scene by scene. And... Even like he's trying to make sense to like, uh, or he's trying to define answers. Yeah, I listened what. to that episode. <laughs> the talking about this scene, yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm like, I, I'm like, I feel bad for him trying to make sense of like trying to justify this actions within the confines of this movie. And it's just, so, yeah. Go on. Oh no, I was gonna say. So this is the part where I'm like. You know how I told you I read Volume 1 of Suicide Squad's New 52? Yes. Like, the way that opens up, if you wanted to go, like, a fun, I guess a more fun route, like, the plot of that first novel would have been great, you know? Like, that that whole thing flows so well to me. Like, the, the I don't know if you've read it, but, like, the zombies, like, they, they have to go into that uh, stadium and... Um, they don't know why. And then when they're in there, they're like, guess what? Zombies. And they have to fight all these zombies. And then, you know, they leave and they start establishing like some of these characters can die. And like, it, it happens quickly, but, but it's so contained. You like completely understand what's going on. And the zombie thing is like really fun. I wish they would have done something like that because I think in this movie, like you already mentioned, uh, we both already mentioned, uh, they're just setting up so many ideas and it's like, you're just trying to like keep up with all of it. Yeah, and... I just I just wish that they had done that. Like that that was such a good plot. I remember like after, you know, like reading that and just thinking like, oh man, this this is what it should have been. I mean, <sighs> I know. And, like it's I feel like I'm I feel like I'm dealing with stairmaster trying to uh, <laughs> to justify so, this movie. Yeah. Sorry if I derailed you there. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you didn't derail it as any more than Incubus derailed that one train, so you're fine. There you go. <laughs> um, and so the the task of Force X is greenlit to go after them, even though they don't know that part of the team's the culprit behind this, so at least mm-hmm. the, the government does not know. So at the same time, Joker's trying to figure out where what has happened to Harley, and him and his associate, Johnny Frost, known from the Joker graphic novel written by Brian Azzarello, if you want a great Joker story, I say read that and like okay. that character. And it's it's told from Johnny Frost's point of view. It's almost like done like in almost say the journal sense. Batman's in it for like maybe three panels in the hundred twenty page book. And Wait, is, is it like a is it a new fifty two like the Joker novel? No, 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 it, no was, okay. it was before the new fifty two is in two thousand eight, okay. and like his design okay. is very akin to Ledger's. Uh, design in the Dark Knight. I see. Okay. And I mean, there's like Harley. I don't think Harley has a line of dialogue in the graphic novel, but there's one panel that completely sums up their relationship, where it's Johnny Frost like kind of peeks into like the room, like that that Harley was a stripper at one point in this story, or at least pretending to be when um, Joker was at Arkham. She's sitting on a chair. With like a glass of like whiskey or scotch in hand, like in like still like half dressed garb, and Joker's on his knees, his head is in her lap, and he's crying. And I'm like, that says so much about their relationship in one panel. And I'm like, and I always it's always stuck with me that if you say if you want to check out a great Joker story, I say check that out. Um, 
It's, it well, is. see, and, and that's playing to the whole, like, we were talking earlier about, like, maybe she used to be a stripper. You know, like, I feel like you could make her sexiness make sense in the story if if you flesh it out, like you're saying. Like, yeah. that, I guess, sums it up better than I was trying to. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. No, but I got, your point still got across. Don't feel okay, bad good. about that. <laughs> good. I try. Yeah, it's like. I uh, I text I messaged you later like wow there's like five minutes you just kept rambling I did not know what you were talking about then I was like uh huh and I was just nodding along that's 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 like me just on any day you know if you get me going I'll just keep going <laughs> <laughs> I mean it, it makes sense for an auditory medium like this and so yeah yeah it's the one time talking too much comes in handy podcasting yeah <laughs> exactly and that's how I feel bad when I meet people for the first time because I. Because I podcast so often now, I'm like, "Hi, how are you doing? This is my life story." And they're like, "Okay, wow!" Like, I'm like, "I'm sorry, am I being too much?" I apologize. Um, and so Joker's trying to figure out where Harley is, and we have that one like shot that's to be like that bird's eye view of their kind of his suite, and he's surrounded mm-hmm. by all the knives, and all the guns, and people point out there is baby clothes in the corner of the room. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and so I'm like, "Is Harley pregnant at this point?" I don't know. I felt like it was more like a metaphor for their relationship, maybe, mm-hmm. and him struggling with like where does he want to go with it. Maybe I don't know. It was very like visually interesting, but it didn't really. It never really pays off, you know. No, and so the squad is assembled outside Midway City with Bravo Team and uh, Alpha Team with Rick Flag. And their task is to go in and uh, rescue uh, HVT1 as a person. Okay, did you miss that in the first run through? Because I kind of missed what why they were there in the first place. Um. Oh, oh this is the part where they they save uh, Waller, right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Yeah. Like they're at the airport. And they say go in and save this person. I. For some reason, that flew past me. I'm like, oh, they're going to deal with Enchantress eventually. And they say, oh, they go when they got to the Ostrander building, like, HVT1's in there. I'm like, all right, wait, who's HVT1? Did I miss that dialogue? I do not know that if I was not paying attention to that moment there. Well, I, I think that they intended it to be a real big surprise. Right. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, I understood once they were there, it clicked when they saw her, and I went, oh, they're manipulating them. Like, they're risking their lives and making them do so much, and it's to get the one person that they hate. They can't tell them that's what they're doing. You know? Right. Hmm. And so, we're introduced to the red shirt, Slipknot. Um, <laughs> and he has a really dark story that, that was kind of cut out. Of yeah, the movie. probably for the best. <laughs> Especially with like his first line delivery after he punches at the woman, like she had a mouth. I'm like, oh, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, isn't he like a rapist or something? It's like, why? Yeah, why? that's what it's. At least it's, I guess it's supposed to make us feel better. His head explodes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I guess it's like to make him feel like, yeah, we do not care. I just feel bad because Adam Beach, like I, I like him as an actor. And I just feel bad, like, yeah, you were you were totally the red shirt on this team right here. You were in this movie for three minutes. I know. They're like, look at this cool Native American character. Oh, his head exploded at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? It was just strange. But yeah. I got, I'm curious, like, I wonder if the band Slipknot got their name from him. I do not know. It was just something. I don't I- know. That's a good point. I'm not sure. 
I mean, like, obviously the idea of a Slipknot has been around for a while, so maybe yeah. not. But <laughs> anyway, so they go into the city. Um, we're introduced to Katana. We get we get a moment of her flashback that her husband's soul is trapped within the, the confines of her sword. Mm-hmm. More set up because that pays off. Yeah. I know it, it doesn't, and this is terrible because I'm like, I think it's great that they have this Japanese character. I think that's cool that they cast someone that's Japanese. Uh, but I do feel like we could have probably done without this character at all. Yeah. I don't know that she really added anything to the plot. She doesn't really connect with any of the characters. So I don't really know why she's there other than she looks really cool. I love her character in Arrow. Yeah. Like in the show. I was like, oh, she's so cool. I love her outfit. I love, you know, her story. It's deep. It's interesting. But here they're just like, it's it's just told to you so quickly. <laughs> and then she just kind of mutters to her sword all the time. But there's just not enough of a connection there. And, yeah, I think I think you could leave her out. And then, yeah, I don't know. I kind of wish that, um, that Slipknot was... Uh, who was the guy that got exploded in the uh, comic? Or, or in the movie, it was... KG Beast. That's right. See, that's a guy you know right away when you see him. He's terrible. They should have done that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to have someone that commits sexual crimes. You just have KG Beast. Like, that's fun. And when his head explodes, no one cares. Um, no. <laughs> so those are, those are two of the changes I would make. <laughs> well, the thing is, KG Beast was technically in Batman v Superman already. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, but also think, go on. It could have been that shark guy. Oh, um, King Shark. Yeah, doesn't he die? I don't think, I think uh, so many people die in that Assault and Arca movie. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, I I think. Oh, in the the comic, sorry. I'm I'm like mixing medium here, but um, yeah, I think he dies in the comics. Maybe not, but that's what I remember. Um. But yeah, he you know somebody just that looks bad and their head explodes and you don't have like a big connection. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think like um, King Shark was kind of on the table, but I think Air wanted to can keep it less CGI as possible, so that's why mm, they went with Kill Croc. Yeah, I mean hell, the, this movie won best uh, an Oscar for best hair and makeup, so I mean like yeah, I guess that that did definitely pay off. And so they go into Midway, they're shot down, we, um, Slipknot's head is blown up, and then we meet the eyes of the adversary in this one alley fight, and your feelings in this, this first action set piece with them? Um, I think all the action scenes look great. I'm not sure how I feel about these eye creatures. Um, I know I, when you watch the behind the scenes, David Ayers had like a dream about it, and that's how they came up with how they looked. I don't know. I don't really like how they look. I mean, that's just like a minor complaint. Um, but I think all the action sequences in this movie look really good because I think the choreography is there and, uh, you know, they know how to like shoot guns. And um, I, I think, I think those are the stronger parts of the movie for me, but I just don't like the way the bad guys look. Yeah. I mean, like it's definitely like, Oh, it's cheap cannon fodder for the squad to kill. Right, and it's like, oh, these aren't people, they're eye people, <laughs> you know? It's like, that way they, you don't have to deal with the emotional fallout of if they're shooting at people. 
but they even point out the fact like that thing thing was wearing a three thousand dollar Rolex. Like mm-hmm. that was a person in there. We don't know if it's a person anymore. We don't know if they can convert it back or anything. That's true, but I just feel that for some reason audiences don't care if they don't look like people. <laughs> no, I mean that's why stormtroopers can get killed all the time. Right, right. And, and I, I love like yeah because we have like flag almost getting taken away and the squad has to protect them. Like Harley goes in as well as Scott Eastwood. Yeah, you waste Clint Eastwood's son on a nobody character. Oh my god! Remember all the theories about what he's doing there? They're like he's going to be Nightwing. He's going to be this. He's going to be that. Nope, nothing. No. Will we ever know what he was really supposed to be there for? <laughs> he he was GQ Edwards. That's his character's name. Just a navy, a regular navy seal. You do not waste Clint Eastwood's son. It doesn't make sense. I mean, okay. <laughs> to be fair, we thought uh, what's his name in BVS was going to be somebody, but no, he was just the character guy's legs taken off in the Black Zero event in mm-hmm. Man of Steel. Or what's her name? Who was the Star Labs technician? I think. Oh I heard, yeah. And I think it's a. I think it's an indictment on geek culture to begin with, or at least like kind of our certain fandom because we'll look into everything. Like hell, right now, like all the leaked photos of Shazam right now. Everybody's like pixel peeping, trying to get the best view of them. I think we may have just we just do this to ourselves. True. That's true. But as you said, he's he's a big name. I mean, you know, Clint Eastwood's son. I just and and he he looks so specific. He's very very good looking. He just kind of stands out. He doesn't look like just an army guy. No. <laughs> and I think that's what's also misleading about it. It's like you look at him. He looks he looks important. Like he's supposed to be important. He stands out from everybody else. And yet he has very little purpose in the movie. So I'm wondering, like, was his part? like minimize somehow in a rewrite or I don't know. It just seems weird to me. Uh, it, it is, it is kind of baffling and I wonder why he was included, but, and I think my favorite part of the sequence is when Deadshot climbs on top of the car and he's using his wrist gauntlets and he's just taking mm-hmm. that out and the rest of the squad just stops him kind of like in awe of his skill set. And I think it's that moment when like the rumors of like a Deadshot movie coming to fruition it's because mm-hmm. of that sequence. Yeah, and like just the way you know his—that's um, <clears throat> what you said—he's using his like arm cannons or whatever his arm guns. <clears throat> um, those you know actually work; they are functional. They fire, and like I think all his weapons, all their weapons, really look so good. And that's like another I think big strength of the movie. Um, and then yeah, all the work that he does in that scene just looks really nice. Yeah, because like like his wrist gauntlets, like they had like the magazines going to the side of his wrist, and everything, and he could yeah. eject them if he if once they run out of ammo. I mean, like obviously in the comics and everything, and I'm I'm trying to remember. Oh, it's um, Batman Gotham Knight, like that animated movie that's very uh, like anime style, and like it was like four like short stories like thrown in. I yeah. remember the last one was a Deadshot one, and he's got yep. just his wrist gauntlets in it. He's firing, like, hundreds of rounds at Batman. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, I understand comic book logic and it's anime. Like, but even now, I'm like, you should probably reload sometime soon, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I know I'm being nitpicky there. No, and, I mean, and having a gun on your wrist, probably not a great idea. You could, like, shoot your hand off, let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> or, or if, like, it burns through, like, it burns the top of your hands because the barrels are so hot or anything. Right. Um, and so... 
the Joker is also trying to find a way to deactivate uh, the bomb in Harley's uh, neck. And going back really quick to the, the Arkham scene, when we see him, like, escape, like, all of his um, goons have, like, weird, like, kind of um, masks on. And I love mm-hmm. one of them is dressed as a goat. And when he's gunned <laughs> down, there is a goat bleed. sound like, bleed, as it, as it falls to the ground as he dies. I didn't I, notice that. I only noticed that recently, like, uh, upon, like, a home view, like, I, I hear very faintly in the mix, and I, and I had to turn up the TV, and I'm like, that's really funny, they threw it in there. And mm-hmm. so that's what Joker is doing, is he's closing in on Midway City, and he's sending texts to a stolen phone that, that Harley has. And so they get to the John Ostrander building, nice reference to John Ostrander, because I believe HVT1 is at the top of the building. They go in, we have, Harley gets into an elevator... Attacked by more of the eyes of the adversary. She defends herself, defeats them, and then she gets off the floor and everybody else is already there. I'm like, did she hit the emergency stop? Is it just a slow elevator? Like, how did they get there <laughs> I before? I didn't even notice that. <laughs> I, I, wa- I watched it like, the second time in the theater. I'm like, how the hell did they get there before her? And I'm like, I understand. Like, I'm like, huh. Movie logic, I'll let it roll. It was just something I noticed and... We have this office skirmish again where Flag is trying to be taken away. They all rally around him and protect him. I love that shot where they're all in the group shot. They surround him. And Boomerang's got his Boomerang's out and he's cutting people. He gets stabbed in the chest and he's protected because he has a lot of bills in his pocket, breast pocket that protects him. And finally, El Diablo stayed out of the fight the entire time and Deadshot eventually irks him into using his powers to defend them. How do you feel about this set piece uh, specifically? Um, yeah, I thought I thought that was pretty good payoff when he finally uses his powers. Um, uh, do Do you mean to go through the the whole scene or or yeah, just that like, part? your feelings oh, okay. overall? Um, so okay, I was gonna say the part where the Joker, you know, goes to that chemical plant and and uh, oh wait, sorry, the part where the Joker like breaks out. And he goes to that place, because that's the scene too, right? Where he he shoots that guy in the neck, or is that, has that not happened yet? That happened earlier. I know I jumped around a little bit because oh, okay. I, I didn't want to well, let that go by. Okay, well, I I did want to say in that part, the first time I watched the movie, I was not sure what was happening there. <laughs> right. Like I was, you know, the second time I was like, oh, he's threatening the guy that put that thing in their necks so that he can get the answer to how to get to turn off Harley's. But the first time I saw it, I had no idea what that part was about. I was like, I guess they're just showing he's crazy. You know, I, I think because they showed so many scenes that don't really pay off later, that scene it directly connecting to the plot didn't click with me at first. So that's my thoughts on that. Um, and then let's see. Uh, when they go to, when they have that big confrontation and, then there's the elevator scene. I think the elevator scene with Harley is really good. It's one of the the cooler scenes in that movie. It's like all CG. Have you watched like the behind the scenes of that? Like she's not in an elevator. It's like all 100% CG. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like go go watch it behind the scenes. It's like oh, I thought like it was all like happening, but I think it from what I remember, it's like all green screen. And then. Um, and then they go into the office and uh, let's see. So then um, they have that, that um, confrontation with Diablo and he releases his powers finally. 
Um, I think that part's good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I liked, I liked all of it. I like this whole sequence. I, when they're on the ground and they're fighting, like, I guess kind of like military-esque style, like when they're fighting the, the, the demons and when they're, um, doing things like extracting Amanda Waller, like those are the strongest parts of the movie for me. I agree. And because at least within the confines of this movie and the tone of it, it works. Mm-hmm. And, and like, it's like, I wish we would have just stayed here, you know? Right. And it Keep it smaller. Yeah. I mean, like you don't like, if this is like you said before, this is justice league dark. It makes sense that we go up against a villain like this. You would see John Costi or dead man or swamp thing going up against the enchanters. It would work. Mm-hmm. Here, I don't know if that was really appropriate, but at least fighting these these goons thus far, it simply seems it is it's within their wheelhouse. Because I know it's a lot of people's complaints, like why would they fight them? Why would they go up against the chances? Like, granted, that was not the task they were given to go against the chances. That just they eventually did because they knew it would be it would that her evil was spread throughout the world, and there was no place they could hide, and. So they fight through the office. The Diablo uses his powers. We have a flashback to the chemical plant as when Harley Quinn is truly born. Mm-hmm. I think this is their best scene between Leto and uh, Robbie. Mm-hmm. I think earlier I was getting confused. I kind of thought this scene was earlier in the movie. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I mean, the earlier scene when she's on the motorcycle and stops him. I love how like he stops in the middle of the road and a truck driver... Stops his car and he gets out and he starts yelling at the tomb. Okay, dude, you're in Gotham. And that guy looks like the Joker. You gotta yell at him? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, really you deserve point. me a shot. I, I have really no sympathy for you. <laughs> and, and it's like, uh, uh, that always gets a laugh at me. And like, he's like, would you die for me? He In the chemical plant scene, he's like, he's like, no, that's too easy. Would you live for me? And is this like her origin in the New 52? Like, her going into the chemical plant, kind of, like, just like how Joker did? Yeah, from what I've heard in the new... And like I said, I haven't read a lot of the comics. I kind of skipped around, like, skimmed Wikipedia, and I read the Suicide Squad novel that doesn't have her origin in it. But from what I've heard, she... This is her origin now, and, like, it, her skin is, like, dyed white like his is. It's okay. not makeup. Yeah. She's... And and that it like did something to her mind too, like to where now she's like nuts, kind in the same way that Joker is. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I love I like the fact that she goes in first, and and Joker's gonna walk away, but it's that moment of hesitation. He's like, and he's like, oh damn it! And he takes off his jacket and he dives in after her, and like yeah, and I understand why people say like relationship goals between Joker and Harley, like. Yeah, if it's an abusive relationship, it's totally yeah, one-sided. It's manipulative, like, you live just for me. And, like, I feel like what keeps him excited or entertained is just the idea that, you know, he has complete control over her. So I, I, I don't really feel that it's, like, love. I think it's just like a, man, I can get this chick to do whatever I want, you know? I mean, at least that's what Leto said. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, like, definitely not relationship goals. No. <laughs> and so we cut back to the present where the squad finds out they're saving Amanda Waller who is in Midway City Waller executes all of her underlings because they knew too much and Viola Davis is like 
blows him away, holsters her pistol, grabs her, her, her suitcase, and walks out. So cold. And even, like, even Deadside's like, damn. And I feel like this is the point where uh, Rick Flagg has a real big moral dilemma, I think. Because, you know, he had told... Um, he had told Will Smith earlier in the movie that, you know, he's a soldier, that he's doing the right thing, that he's completely different above him. And then this scene happens. And I feel like Will Smith's character um, was sort of saying in that scene that he saw different levels to everything. I think that Rick Flagg does, like he doesn't see the world the way Rick Flagg does. And this is like where, like, I guess, like, the rose colored lenses are off or whatever, you know, like he sees who Waller really is. And while Will Smith is surprised, he's not, he's, he's surprised, but he's not like surprised in the way that it's like impossible. He's surprised that it happened, but he's like, well, yeah, the world's messed up kind of attitude. And uh, Rick flag is like, well, what am I really doing here? Who am I really following? Like, I think this is where he has kind of a turning point. Yeah. And it's definitely, even further illustrated and a little bit later. And so they go to the roof to try to get a helicopter to, to evac out of there. But they find out the helicopter has been commandeered by the Joker who opens fire on them. And I love, I like Jenna Leno's performance here where he's laughing maniacally as he fires his golden AK-47 onto the crowd and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harley's bomb is de- deactivated and she jumps into the helicopter. And this is very different because initially... She does not fall from the helicopter. She was she pushed. Is pushed. Yeah. See, okay, th- this is again, this is where I feel like they didn't know what they wanted to do with her character and this is what makes a lot of the stuff about her kind of confusing. Um, you know, part of Harley Quinn's origin is that she's in this abusive relationship and I think part of what was supposed to happen in the movie is her realizing that and rising above that. And I do think that that is a good message, but when you're trying to on the fact that the relationship with the Joker is bad, I mean, honestly, towards the end of this movie, I'm like, he's not so bad. Like, she's like, I need to leave him. And and you're like, why? He seems really nice to you. Like, I think that you lose something when you take that away. You know, I, I just I, I think it's a lot of mixed messages and I understand not wanting to have, um, I guess, a girl in a violent relationship as someone that everyone looks up to. But at the same time, again, you could you could spin it in, a, in an empowering way where she gets out of that situation. But it's kind of like they just they want to have both. You know, they want to be able to sell Harley Joker stuff and they want to be able to you know, play on that a little bit, but keep it just out of reach to where they don't really have to explain it. And I don't know. I, I don't really like that. I think if you're going to do the character and do it right, you need to go there. But that's just my personal opinion. Right. Because after she gets on the helicopter, it's shot down and we never see the Joker again. And right. there was a trailer where we see him like with the frag grenade. And then he's like, he says, bye bye. And he's runs away. It's inferred or it was ha- what people like reports say that he runs, he meets up with Harley during the climax and mm-hmm. says like, we have to get away. And she's like, no, I'm not leaving my friends. And then he gets angry and he throws the grenade at them. And so it kind of like, it like it further illustrate the point. Like, yeah, it, it could, like you said, show the abuse relationship and show Harley rise above it and overcome it. I think that would be, but a good it's myth. like, 
Yeah, but it's like they want to keep it open just in case they do something with their relationship later, I feel like. Yeah, but I think at that point, I think her and Poison Ivy, I think their relationship is likely somewhat more healthy than her and Joker. Mm, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, they are codependent. We'll, like, we'll say that, that's for sure. Yeah, but not as violent, yeah. No. I mean, I think that's one really good thing... Uh, I know I bashed Batman and Harley Quinn earlier at the anime movie, but I do enjoy their friendship and their relationship, especially at the end. And Me how, too. Especially how Harley diffuses Poison Ivy. Mm-hmm. Because I think yeah. it's so Harley. It is. Um, it, that's that, that stuff's cute. Like, I like that. But yeah, you're right. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and we also have a moment here where Waller says, like, Deadshot, kill that woman. Like, I'll give you your freedom and you get to be with your kid. Just shoot her. And he's like, oh, she's dead. And he has a moment of hesitation. He fires and he misses for the very first time. And everybody realizes that that's a turning point in his character as well. Mm-hmm. Which I love. Yeah. And it's like, again, showing, I think, for for the audience and like also for Rick Flagg, like he... He had these rules in his mind of, like, what's right and wrong, what separates them, and Amanda Waller crossed that, and then she's doing it again, and so, like, this is, again, putting more questions in Rick Flagg's mind, well, who's a good guy and who's a bad guy here, because Deadshot doesn't, you know, just kill everybody without hesitation, like, even though that's kind of like what he's known for, even he has a moral compass that Amanda Waller doesn't, Um, I like that part, and... Also, though, so why does she want him to shoot her? I guess just because she got away? Yeah, and I guess she wants to still exude her power over everybody and keep everybody in line. Yeah, like, don't don't hire someone to take the chip out of your neck or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... it's. Yeah. I understand, like, she wants to continue to have that leverage over everybody, and it's another way of manipulating mm-hmm. him. And so... Waller is trying to escape on her own helicopter, is shot down, and is taken hostage by Enchantress, mm-hmm. who then uses her knowledge to attack the United States government with her the help of her machine. And at the same time, we find Harley still alive, reunites with the group, and the, the real history and the truth about why the situation midway comes out, why it's Enchantress, and the squad says, screw this. We're going to have a drink, and they go into the bar. And then we enter probably, arguably, the best scene in the movie. Yep, I agree. And your feelings in the bar scene. I, I like the bar scene. I like the extended cut version of the bar scene. Um, I think there's a really good opportunity here to establish their connections a little bit better. I think it could have maybe even been more fleshed out. But, but I like the way that it flows. I think the only complaint I have is, um, you know, they set up here uh, the stuff with uh, Diablo, and I don't feel like he has, like, a big redemption moment that I don't feel like 100% pays off later, but I like that they show his backstory here. This is one of the times where they show a backstory really late, but I think it, like, makes sense. Yeah, because I feel like there's been so much build-up to the explanation why. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, maybe that, and I love the, the visual when he shows like the the woman in his hand in flame, and he puts the glass on top of it, and then she's slowly consumed by the smoke and dies. I always, I always love that little visual twist to yeah. it. Yeah, 
and the fact that he's, he's responsible for his wife and children's death because he lost control, and that's why he's maintained control throughout the rest of the movie, or up until this point, I should say. And yeah. I, know, I know a lot of people say, like, Harley gets a little too vicious with him, like, saying, like, own that shit. And I'm like, and some people are like, wow, that's a bit harsh. I'm like, she's like, because she's doing kind of, she's being her manipulative self there. Mm-hmm. And then, and, go yeah. on. Yeah. I, I also think there's, like, a little bit of justifying there, too. Like, if we could have seen the Joker be cruel to her in the way that she kind of justifies her relationship with him and, and the violence in their relationship. I don't know. I felt like there was like a connection there with that, with her egging him on. Like he, he's looking for redemption and a way to get out of it. And she's kind of like, no, this is where we belong. We have to stay living like this and operating like this because that's what works for her, you know, with her relationship with the Joker. It's like, she likes the idea. I feel like that she can't get away from him. Um, even with all these red flags and obvious, like get out of here stuff. Um, and so I feel like she's kind of turning that logic back on Diablo. It's like very toxic and very uh, unhealthy, but I, I think it, it fits with her character. I mean, even to the point that uh, Boomerang calls, says, why is it a knife fight every time you open your mouth? Because like outside you're amazing, but inside you're ugly. And he's calling her out on her, he feels that she's being very transparent there. That even mm-hmm. though she puts out the allure of her, but that she's actually a broken person on the inside. And then Harley retorts saying, like, we're all ugly on the inside. Except for him, referring to Killer Croc. He's ugly on the outside. And Croc's mm-hmm. like, no, like, I, I'm beautiful. And, just, and he's fully accepting who he is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, see, I think it's a lot of really cool stuff in that scene. Like, I think that she, you know, she she wants them all to stay at the state that they're at. And, like, a lot of the characters are starting to grow a little bit. And she, it's almost like she doesn't want that to happen, you know? She doesn't want them to grow out of that, and I don't know. I think that's that's pretty interesting stuff. They could they should have played that up more. I think. Yeah, I mean, like some people say, if the whole movie was like this, we could have it would have been fine because it would have just been cool to see these characters interact. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree with that. Yeah. And then Flag comes in and deactivates the nanite explosive in their neck. I love how Boomerang immediately just runs out. <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's just indicative for him. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And then we find out that that Deadshot star has, has written a letter every day that he's been locked up, even though he only has, like, ten letters on him. I presume there's, like, a, a room filled with her letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they agree, like, yeah, let's go stop Enchantress. And so they say, like, all right, screw it, why not? So they all march off, and we have their hero shot of them all assembled, and Boomerang comes back because the plot deems him to come back because... Otherwise, I feel like his character wouldn't have come back, personally. (laughs) That's true. And so they go and fight Enchantress and defeat Incubus in the way. But we also have this weird projection of everybody, like what their perfect fantasy is. Your feelings on that? Um, I thought Harley's was very fitting. Um, I I liked this scene. I thought it displayed their relationship pretty well, but I think it would have been more effective if we knew how bad the relationship was, right? Yes. Because for the purposes of this movie, it's like, I want us to get married someday. Okay, that's not that bad. That's not unhealthy. That's not like an unattainable dream or whatever. But, like, 
it's supposed to be. So I feel like it doesn't pay off the way it should have. If that makes sense. If we were if we were going based upon like the abusive relationship, yes. Yeah. But like we're not, so we're just kind of like, oh yeah, like maybe one day. It definitely doesn't seem as far fetched as these visions are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And then like the scene with Diablo and his his family that that's really sad. That's very that really tugs at the heartstrings. Um, but I also feel like it's sort of uh, he's the first one to kind of get out of it because of that because he's already sort of worked through and accepted his his uh his role in that so he's able to get out the fastest because of it and then there's that also that is there a vision for uh for um Deadshot 2 or does that happen just at the end no he, he has a vision of killing the bat okay of killing the batman yeah which i thought was like a like a way to kind of give us a little break because <laughs> that's like kind of funny in a way yeah see so yeah. like see so batman <laughs> down to the ground yeah yeah, it's like, haha. So I, I feel like that was to give us like a little break in between all these serious scenes. Um, I also felt like uh, Jared Leto in that scene where he's supposed to look normal reminded me of the dream scene at the end of Requiem for a Dream. Have you seen that movie? Yes, I know. Oh my like, God, he looked like right. the same. Like, you know, when, when his mom has that like fantasy where everything's fine and like her son's like all cleaned up and not a junkie. And she's yeah. like, this is my son. He like looks the same as he does in this movie. Well, I, I feel like <laughs> him and Keanu Reeves have an elixir that had stopped him yeah. aging. But he like had the same hair, even like hair slicked back and everything. I don't know. It just stuck out to me. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, and then we have the the normal setting on a, a dryer, like as Harley mentioned before, and so Diablo shakes him out of their vision, and he comes and confronts Incubus, and he transforms into his true self. Mm-hmm. Was that jarring for you? No, I thought it fit. I was excited about that part. The only part I don't like is that he dies. Like, I want him to be able to come back. <laughs> yeah. Because I felt like, you know, th- there was a lot of build-up to that character, and then it paid off, but not enough. Like, I, I just wish we could have gotten to know him a little bit more. And I don't know. It's just a bummer for me. I'm like, oh, cool, like, a Hispanic superhero. And then they're like, but he's dead now. And I'm like, oh, no, you j- no, no, he- we just met him. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like he was one of the stronger characters of the movie, at least for me. So I was like bummed out by that. Um, but no, I mean, I know that I complained about the magic earlier, but this one part, I actually didn't have a problem with his transformation stuff. Okay, and so yeah, Incubus is defeated, and like Killer Croc it helps them blow him up along with Scott Eastwood and the rest of the squad, the the seals, and so Enchantress gets us to fight herself. And I do like this sequence of all of them teaming up in in the vain effort to try and defeat her, mm-hmm. and and they're like, and she's like, enough, you you fought well, and I'll give you mercy if you just bow before my feet. And Harley plays kind of like, like what what the whole world's against us anyway, and tricks a chance and ends up cutting her chest and ripping out her heart, uh, Mortal Kombat style, and. They have the moment where like, we can destroy the heart, we can, we can destroy the machine, and Killer Croc throws the C4 in slow motion. And I know some people like have problem with like, too much slow motion, but I think this is perfect for this sequence right here. I agree. Yeah. No, I don't have. A, I think people overdo the hatred on slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> personally, 
It's like, sometimes it makes sense. It's not like the whole movie was in slow motion. Come on. It was just this one scene. Yeah, and and then we have a vision of uh, Deadshot's daughter pleading with him not to do it. And I think this is a great moment here for his character. Mm-hmm. I agree, yep. And then, like, how the chamber of Harley's, like, giant six-shooter, like, goes from, like, it has the um, engravings of love and hate on all the cylinders. And it goes from hate to love, and that's the bullet that fires out igniting the C4 in the belly of the machine and blows it up. And Flag has um, enchanted his heart. Enchanted says, you don't have the balls to do this. And he crushes the heart, knowing they'll probably kill Dr. Moon in the process. Did you feel like that line, you don't have the balls, was kind of weird? I think coming from her, maybe. Yeah, that was kind of strange. I also want to say... Harley saying like the world's against us anyway. Again, I feel like there was a there was a cut of this movie where they were saying making that point a lot, right? Like her saying we're all ugly on the inside, uh, the world's against us. Uh, I felt like there was I told you that hierarchy stuff earlier. I feel like that really should have been a bigger part of the movie, and I feel like it used to be or something. It's we'll get into that in a moment okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I, i'm sorry i just i just i can't get over it it's no no so you know it's totally right because it's, it's a total <laughs> sticking point and it's something that yeah. watching it is like you see the potential what it could be and what, what yeah. we're dealing with and so dr moon's alive so is amanda waller even to the much of the chagrin of like will smith's like how are you still alive like because like so many people were like just that bad. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like she's speak. He's speaking for the audience right there. Yeah. No, oh, for sure. And it's like she's just so evil she can't die. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. Right. And so she guarantees like ten years off for a sentence and some um, things that could be brought to Bell Rev. And we have another scene between Deadshot and his daughter. And he's teaching her uh, the Pythagorean theorem at this point. Um, and using the hypotenuse and everything. And we have mm-hmm. this kind of nice moment here, and, like, the the transportation team wants to take him out and shackles and flags, like, no, let's not do this in front of this kid. And I, I enjoy that moment. I enjoy this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, too. That we have... Uh, Boomerang's not having it in prison. He's he is not... He, he's losing his cool. <laughs> yeah. Um... Croc has got his BET, he's got his TV, and he's joining, I think it's like Burger King or McDonald's. And Harley's got her cappuccino machine, she's got her pinky out while sipping because she's fancy like that. <laughs> uh, Joker blows open the wall, rescues Harley, and says, let's go home. Then we have a mid cred scene with Batman talking to Amanda Waller about possible metahumans. And he says, if you don't shut, shut down the squad, I'll do it for you. And it kind of leads into Justice League. And then the movie ends. And so your feelings on the ending of the movie? Um, well, visually, I really like the part where Joker breaks her out. I, I think that that was added because I think it was supposed to end how it did, where he's just like, bye-bye now. And I think that's a little stronger because she said she was staying with the team and she made this big choice to stay with her family. But then that ending part kind of takes away from that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the wrap-up for everyone else I like. You know, Croc, I really like that. Although I will say, you know, Croc is like one of my favorite bad guys. And 
I don't know. I just wish we had more of him. Do you feel that way? Like he's he's a really cool character, and so I I don't think he gets enough love in this movie. So that's kind of hard. I mean, um, I wish yeah. there's more of him because I enjoy him as a character, mm-hmm. and so I'm just like, oh man, there's so much potential. Like, if that'll kind of go into my final thoughts, like my my summation of it. But yeah, I I wish there was more of him and there's more interactions with him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I really, really do like the interaction between Flag and uh, and Deadshot at the end. Again, I feel like they were setting up the whole time like we're not so different. We're kind of on the same page in a way. We're both soldiers. You know, they just operate under different rules, um, and that really hits home at the end. And uh, you feel like there's hope for this little team. Uh, so I like that too. Um, the end credit scene where she meets with Bruce Wayne was super exciting for me. Like when I saw it in the theaters, I was like, yay. And I love that they established that Waller, like even Batman's kind of scared of her. Like I, I do like that. I mean, <laughs> where, she, where she like implies she knows who he is and stuff. Stop working nights. You know, I think that's pretty. Um, and he kind of has that look like, oh, uh, you know, I, I like that because I think that that's how that character should be uh, extremely intimidating. And I like I think it's fine, like, the way it sets up the next movie. So, I don't have a problem with it. I like it. Yeah, and I think Waller is one of the few people that scares Batman. Yeah, she's, like, pure evil. Like, she has a good backstory, and it is tragic, but she's lost her humanity, and I like that about her. Yeah. (laughs) It makes her a good villain. I mean, like, that's why I love the interactions, like, in the stuff, like, I've seen with Ostrander's run on Suicide Squad, or even in Justice League International, where he's kind of has some inter- there is there is a crossover between the Justice League International and the Suicide Squad and the JLI mm-hmm. is more of a comedic book it's more it is more kind of like it's kind of like a sitcom especially with Booster Gold and Blue Beetles interactions and everybody's just kind of like like to the point where older members of Justice League come in like why is everybody making jokes like like John Jones, why are you cracking jokes right now? We're in a, and like Hawkman is so steadfast. Like this is not what the Justice League used to stand for, and that's kind of like how the run of this team is. And when they come across the Suicide Squad, they do get into a scuffle, and it's down to Rick Flag fight Rick Flag fighting Batman, and the two men are so driven in their willpower to defeat their enemy, and they're so and they have such a great skill set on either side that. Both of them like, they're going to kill each other. We have to get in between them. And it takes both teams to separate the both of them. And and so I, I, and I love like their interactions that Batman has with Waller within that comic. And the, the, the scene here. And I love how she says, you look tired, Mr. Wayne. And he does look tired. Like, he looks like a very tired Ben Affleck. Because that was in the midst of everything that was going on in 2016 for him. So he does look exhausted in that scene. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, and so the movie comes to a close. And my, what are your final thoughts and final feelings upon the movie with this viewing and this review? Um. Well, I'll say I I feel kind of bad that I had so many critiques to say throughout the the film. I I know it sounds like I'm saying I don't like this movie. That's not true. I actually do like it, and what I would say is there's enough about this movie for me to hold on to that. I like, I think it looks great. I love the world that David Ayer built. Like the, you know, when you watch like the behind the scenes, he talks about how grounded he is. He made everybody, 
you know, have, have go through a lot of training for the fight scenes. And I think all that pays off. Um, he, he had Rick flag or, uh, you know, Kinnaman, uh, like do some immersion training and stuff. And I think that that's great. Um, I like, you can really tell where this movie was going and what it was supposed to be doing. I just wish they had stuck with that vision. Um, because I do feel like a lot of the complaints people have about the third act feeling kind of like out of nowhere and like, Oh, now it's magic. You know, it does feel kind of shoehorned in and the whole like big beam in the sky thing is in a lot of movies right now for some reason. Um, and I, I don't know that that's ever really a strong bad guy kind of plot. Um, and so, yeah, but I love the way all the characters look. I like all their costumes and the design. I think all their weapons look really awesome. The prop work is really, really great. Um, that's another really cool behind-the-scenes thing you can watch about. Again, as I mentioned earlier, dead shots, guns actually functioning and stuff like that. I think they went through a lot of work to make all that stuff look good, and it shows. Um, I think the characters themselves, while some of them really did need to be fleshed out a little bit more, I think that they're all interesting and engaging enough to where I've heard a lot of reviewers say they didn't like the movie, but they liked all the characters. You know, they, there was enough about it for them to say, I want to see more. And I definitely feel that way about the movie. Um, I, I guess the biggest standouts being Will Smith and Margot Robbie, I thought gave 110%. And I think that their portrayals as both the characters were really, really good. And I'm excited for the next one. I'm not, I'm not like, I didn't walk away from it going, oh, that was a huge disaster. I just want to get away from it. You know, I I walked away thinking it had a lot of potential and I want to see where that goes. And I agree with you. I I feel like if I was going to try to sum this up in a phrase, like it's, there's so much potential here that it is enjoyable and and we should, I know because the mindset I should have had when I was going into Just Sleep, but I should take the movie on its own merits and not demand why is it not the movie I wanted. Now, it's a little different because we were promised one thing, especially coming from the first trailer and knowing David Ayer's previous works and then what we got and how it's kind of a hodgepodge of things. And I think it was I think it was Ray from Fans Without Borders and DZ TV Squadcast. He's like, he feels like this was the most meddled of all the DC movies, not just think, but this one because of all the tampering that Warner Brothers has done to this movie, and I do think it shows, and like, inconsistent tone, and like there's ideas of like what could be deeper themes that could have made this movie more resonate with audiences and have some things that are a little odd, and like what happened here and there despite all that, I still find this to be an enjoyable movie Maybe it's because I'm biased and I enjoy these characters. I enjoy DC movies. And so, and maybe I'm just not, I'm just trying not to look, look I, because at this point, I, we're having this conversation with, um, with, I, I, I don't know if I was, I, don't know, I forget who I was having this conversation with. We've had so many comic book movies now. And so many comic book properties are in process on TV and on in the movies themselves that we have a certain expectation of what movies these are supposed to be, and that they're not going to be here forever. And so I try and just enjoy them and not be just have my arms crossed, like, well, it was not like this. Like, I should be more accepting and more welcoming of what we have. 
And so that's why I kind of try to have with Suicide Squad. And I hope that Suicide Squad 2 will kind of maybe fix some of the problems and the inconsistencies that this movie had and still be able to retain the kind of essence that made this movie a, a, such a financial success. I, mm-hmm. And I just hope that we have that going forward and that Warner Brothers overall has a clear vision of what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And and I was mentioning to uh, to Ray before we started recording, because he was talking about uh, representation in in movies um, and, you know, Black Panther uh, gets a lot of accolades, rightly so for what they did with that movie. But I will also say that this movie I thought had really good representation in it. You know, it, it starred a woman and an African-American man and there was Hispanic, uh, you know, lead character an Asian lead character. And that actually did impact ticket sales. I was reading an article earlier today I can send you, but, um, they said that, you know, like a big percentage of the sales were actually uh, people of color uh, to come out to see the movie, um, meaning specifically African-American people and Hispanic people came out in, in big numbers to see it, um, meaning that there's a market for that. And it's it's sad that the execution like maybe wasn't everything we needed. But also, I think that it did. They did hit on something that is needed in uh, in superhero movies. And I feel like that really gets minimized, you know, since that movie came out that was reported on, but now it's kind of like everyone kind of forgot about that, which I think is kind of a bummer. Cause it was, I thought that was really cool. That was one thing that I think, I think I liked about it. I, 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 something I was want to ask you is because you're of Hispanic descent and you're a woman. I mean, how do you feel when you go to these comic book movies and a lot of it's like, it's a lot of white guys up on the screen. <laughs> uh, I would say like, uh, you know, growing up, I, I noticed it a lot. Like as a kid, I, I didn't know words like, uh, you know, feminism or, uh, you know, I guess representation. I, I didn't know that that was a thing. I just knew, I just noticed that characters never looked like me, um, and never had my background. And, um, it, it did, it, it did feel kind of sad sometimes, you know, like, I have memories of like playing with my friends and it's like, we're all going to play this and uh, uh, sorry, there's only, you know, boy characters or, Oh, you can be the girl character, but the girl character isn't very interesting. And so I would be like, no, can I be one of the boy characters? You know, like that's something that I noticed growing up and a lot of stuff that I liked tended to be more guy oriented. So there was really no one to represent me. And um, it, it, it did kind of bother me. And I think I mentioned, like I had a tweet about, uh, about Coco recently, the movie, and how it's such a positive representation of, of Latin culture, whereas a lot of times, like, characters are usually just, um, like, the cartel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, so it's like, you know, like, I had that issue with Breaking Bad. I really, really love that show. But I also felt that there's not really any characters in that show that are Hispanic that aren't evil or, like, pure victims. <laughs> like, there's no real in-between in that show. Um I felt like they could have done better with that, uh, especially if they're going to immerse themselves in that culture, in that setting. The show doesn't really reflect that for me. Um, so I kind of just assumed we wouldn't ever have that in superhero movies. It wasn't like I was angry about it or anything like that. I just thought I don't really know of any superheroes that have that background at all. So I guess I'll, I guess we'll just never see that. Like, again, like not angry, but just assuming it's not going to happen. So in this movie, when it did, uh, 
I was really impressed by it and I thought it was really interesting and I really liked the character that Jay Hernandez played and I thought he played it really, really well and it made me excited. I wanted to see more of it. Um, and I'm excited to see what they do in the future, you know? Yeah. That's going to be my next question. Like, what are your hopes for number two? Um, you know, I think they could do stuff with, uh, like the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, you got Jessica Cruz or, um, I'm always pushing for like, I think it'd be cool if they just made one of the characters that used to be white, you know, Hispanic, like, I don't know, Selena Kyle could be Hispanic, you know, mm-hmm. there's a couple characters like that where it wouldn't really impact the character that much because their background isn't necessarily their ethnicity. Um, I think that's an opportunity to kind of recast in that way uh, without it seeming, you know, the the bad word forced. Yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think it's hard for people to, to relate to that if they don't relate to it, if that makes sense. Like if, if, if you don't know what that's like to not have anybody represent you, then it doesn't seem like a big deal. But it obviously is a big deal because when they do it in a movie, people do turn out bigger numbers. And there's there's a lot of, you know, Hispanic fans that would like to see that. You know, I'm in Texas and there's a lot of us. And so we would love to see more of that. And I, I just hope going forward they'll be like that. I know... Um, the new Green Lantern, I forget, what's her name? Um, oh, shoot. Yeah, isn't it, isn't it, uh, Jessica Cruz? Is that no, right? It, okay, it is Jessica yeah. Cruz. Okay, I was, yeah. I want to be sure about that. But yeah. I oh mean, yeah, I, was, I know, I, I don't read it either. I, I, that's just what I've read. <laughs> yeah, and so oh, I feel like if they do Green Lanterns, I feel like they should do that. Or at least, at least John Stewart. I mean, like, I mean, yeah. it, it, it would I think be, that's their plan. Yeah. I mean, besides the news that we might have Tom Cruise's Hal Jordan, but if we do the buddy cop thing, it makes <laughs> sense. Because the reason being, because Christopher McQuarrie, who did the last two Mission Impossibles, is in talks to do the Green Lantern Corps. And so the idea... I'd be fine with that, yeah. Yeah, because I enjoy um, uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I'm looking forward to Fallout. And so, Me too, and, yeah. And so having Tom Cruise's older Hal Jordan teaching young Jon Stewart, I'll be all for that. Um, and for Suicide Squad 2, I hope it just keeps the kind of kind of like the camaraderie between these characters going forward. And mm-hmm. Gavin O'Connor, like, I love him. I love his work on the account. Uh, I enjoy Miracle. I think that's probably one of my favorite sport movies. And so I have all the I have all the faith in the world going forward. And I just hope it has another big turnout for it. And hopefully maybe Maybe the critics will like it more. I know it's not the it's not the, it's not the be all end all, but it's kind of like one of those things. Whenever like you know, more movies don't get bad critics, and what about your movies? And I'm just like, Jesus, guy. Like I like it's just, I, I I said before, I always got into I always got into fisticuffs with a guy who's bashing DC movies at a comic book convention once because of just the just following what critics say. And I'm like, I don't want to have to be put in that position that I have to vehemently defend myself like that. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you. It just makes you feel, yeah. It's like you know, so many people hit these movies so hard. They just make you feel like you're crazy for liking them, or or desperate. And it's like, I don't feel like I'm a DC fan just to be one. I I do relate to the stories a little bit more. You know, I I find a bigger connection with those stories, and I find the movies more interesting. So I gravitate towards them. So it's like a you know, it's a relationship with that fandom that is, is, you know, I guess I would say more balanced than that. You know, it's, I like it because 
it's the stuff that I like, not just to like it, (laughs) not like blindly following it. I just enjoy it. I enjoyed this movie. I know it has flaws and we talked about them. I was honest about them, but I liked it. I liked a lot of other stuff about it. I liked the, you know, I guess like the tone that it kind of originally had. And I like those darker tones. So I'm looking forward to, to more. And I, I think they can make it a little bit lighter and still keep some of that edge. You know, a movie that I think does that pretty well is like, uh, do you like the movie Kingsman? Yes. Okay. See, I, I feel like that movie and like Kick-Ass like really balance those things really well. Like it's still fun. It's still fast paced. Uh, you, you get a break. There's comedic moments, but they don't have to hold back with the, the violence, the, the language, the, you know, the tone. Like they don't have to hold back with those movies. I like the freedom that they have with them. And so I, I would like to see maybe something like that with Suicide Squad. It's just funny that you mentioned both of those movies and Matthew Vaughn directed both of them. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like he has a real, real handle on that. And yeah. And like he's in possibly my dude Man of Steel 2. So I'm curious if that, if that ever comes to fruition, if that's the direction they go. And I know he wants to be more akin to Dick Donner's Superman, which gives me a slight pause because. Me too, yeah. I mean, as much as I love the, the two Donner Superman movies, I mean. And I understand Man of Steel and BBS and Justice League was a deconstruction and a reconstruction of Kal-El as in his own mythology. So maybe something more akin to the Dick Donner movies is where we should be going forward with Henry Cavill's Superman. I'm not too sure. But this is just pure speculation at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that style translates to Man of Steel 2. But, you know, I guess we just have to see it. I, I can't imagine applying his his uh i guess stylistic stuff to superman like it just doesn't seem like a character he would do that with but i don't know yeah i don't see clark kent punching out somebody and calling him like a mother effort afterwards like "Mm, i'm not sure that clark would do that (laughs) yeah um but yeah so anyway um lisa if you want people to follow you on social media and your show where can they find those links Okay, so um, if you want to, you know, give me your feedback, tell me how angry you are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay. Uh, I'm on Instagram under AYA, and as a Nancy, AMI Lisa. And then, yeah, I also have a podcast called I Love That Movie. Um, it's on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher currently. Uh, we basically just talk about movies that we love. We're not, cr- we're not critics. Um, it's not a straightforward, you know, honest review. It's actually just two people gushing about movies that they're obsessed with. So it's fun. You've been on there. Yes, I have. <laughs> and I, okay. I got like a little jealous because you got, you released so much content in such a small amount of time. And I'm like, damn, I really have to step up my game. Oh gosh. It's exhausting. Like I'm trying right now. I'm trying to go back and like list all the, uh, the movies that I put out, I try to do one a week, but man, it is challenging. I'm, I'm thinking about going bi-weekly because <laughs> it can be a lot, you know, especially yeah. when I, when I also guest, it can feel like I'm just constantly researching. Like, I'm like, oh no, what if I freeze or forget something? Um, it's a lot of info to keep in your head, but, um, it's really, really fun. I think what keeps me going though is, you know, the, the movies that people pick and just hearing their stories and their connections to things, um, like, it was great having you on, especially since, you know, you did study film. And so I like getting that perspective on it, the more, I guess, technical side, because uh, I don't provide that. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that. 
Well, I'm glad you had me on. I hope to be back on soon. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's funny, like, I realized I, I was in a conversation with uh, Jeremy Lloyd, who hosts the Dark Tower Radio, and he's been on Holy Bad Guest before, and he's been on The Real Fans. Uh, it was a conversation between Andy DiGenova, Jeremy, and I, and because we're talking about, we're next week we're going to review uh, John Carpenter's Christine. Ooh. Yeah, and I realized, like, I have four episodes planned with the next week. <laughs> and, like, between this show and Please Rewind, and the Andy just sent the gift from Die Hard, like, welcome to the party, pal. I'm like, yeah, I know, I'm preaching to the choir here, I really shouldn't be bitching here. And I then, know, I'm such a wimp. I'm like, oh, it's so tiring to sit down and record. <laughs> yeah, I, and, like, yeah, because, like, last night, like, uh, um... Jamie Guy and I recorded our next episode of Please Rewind. We actually record. We did a review of Goodfellas, which will be coming up. Nice. Uh, uh, either I love later that this, movie. Yeah, and like I say, like boo, and then it's just the other two. They just go, and like because I look at the I look at the waveforms. I'm like, yeah, like I there goes me for like next ten minutes. I am quiet, and it's just them going. I'm like, well, that's just how it's conversation is going to be. And then I'm like, all right, and I'm texting like three different people, like, all right. We're going to do this. And then, like, oh, you want to do this? No, we'll push it back to next week. And I'm like, Jesus, dude, like, calm down. You're going to just relax. But anyway, if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, my Facebook page for this show, the Anything Goes Podcast. Follow us, follow us there and so you get all the updates of what's coming on with the show and, like, what, and you can find the links to it. You can, uh, the show is obviously on iTunes.com. I believe we're on Stitcher now. And, um... And SoundCloud.com, and my YouTube page, Through the Lens Productions, where all my short films and like uh, videos I do for all my creative endeavors. Because I'm a filmmaker first and foremost, are there. I got a new short film shooting this weekend called Podcaster Problems, which I think was going to be kind of funny about a man trying to get rid of a microphone because it keeps crapping out on him. But the microphone has other plans for his original host, and so we have looked forward <laughs> to that. Yeah, it's very. Evil Dead kind of centric. Right? It's very comedic. And so with that, uh, Lisa, I want to thank you for taking time every night to talk about Suicide Squad with me. For sure. Thank you so much for letting me gush. Hopefully I didn't go too social justice warrior on everybody, but I just, I don't know. I felt like the movie had some of that in there. So I just, I had to throw it in. I had to sneak it in. Uh, but I, I really appreciated dissecting and talking about this because it, it is a movie that I enjoyed. It's flawed, but I enjoyed it. Well, I wanted to know that I was offended. I was, I was triggered. <laughs> Send and... all complaints to at me at Twitter. Let's go. Just kidding. But I'm sure you've seen that. So yeah, it's possible. <laughs> and I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode and we'll talk to you <laughs> soon. Okay. Uh, Boss and I've been in Trillis. I'm a bigger problem when I click with Sprillis. Murder on my mind, it's time to pray to God. My revolver's not religious, the revolution's born. You wanna know my name, then go and tell us us. You wanna know my game, suicide squad. Pistol on my waist, I might make a mistake. Dead shot, head shot, oh my god, am I crazy? Drugs every corner, this is Gotham City. Kill a crop, can't even kidnap you to cut out your kidney. Ain't no mercy, got that purple Lamborghini lurking. Rose, so she know that pussy worth it. 
Hooded Rolex at the Grammy Awards. They still selling dope, that's those Miami boys. Killers everywhere, it ain't no place to run. Forgive me for my wrongs, I have just begun. Ain't, ain't, ain't no mercy. Huh. Got that purple Lamborghini, purple Lamborghini.